Now entering Nerdist.com. Chew it with a guy named Kevin. Chew it and this other guy Steve. Chew it from the TV and the movies, and now this podcast stream. Chew it, they're gonna get chewy. Chew it, they might even get me. Chew it, but they're gonna get funky on this podcast thing. Hey everybody. Welcome to another episode of Chewing It. This is Kevin Heffern on behalf of Steve Lemmy. Thanks for joining us. We got a great show this week. Super interesting guest. Our friend Ivan Asquith sits down with us. Now, Ivan uh, is the mastermind behind the Super Troopers 2 crowdfunding campaign. Uh, you know, we recently did the crowdfunding campaign and we had a great uh, time and we raised a lot of dough. And this is the guy who was behind it all. He's a crowdfunding guru and he's run other campaigns like the Veronica Mars campaign and the Reading Rainbow campaign. And so I know he doesn't want to be called the crowdfunding guru, but he is. He is. He's a, he's a talented guy in, in a lot of different ways. Uh, but he's had a lot of other cool jobs in the media. He was the digital media uh, head for uh, Lucasfilms. Um, he's done uh, uh, a lot of very cool stuff when we talk about all that stuff. It gets pretty wonky. We really get into it, you know, media issues. Uh, and uh, I think you're going to learn some stuff here. Okay, but before we do this, I have one piece of business. So week to week we have advertisers, and those advertisers on the podcast help us defray the cost and keep the thing free and keep it coming to you. And so periodically uh, we do this, but we're doing a, a listener survey. And it helps us to learn more about you and what you're looking for and uh, match up with advertisers that would be best for our show. So um, I need the Chew Crew to do me a favor here. I need you to go to the podsurvey.com website. Podsurvey.com slash chewin. That's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y dot com slash C-H-E-W-I-N. And you take this survey. It takes less than five minutes. It's completely anonymous. They don't have to know who you are. Uh, when you're done, though, you can enter uh, your email if you want, and you can win a $100 Amazon gift card, which is a nice little prize. Uh, they give away one gift card a month. So uh, that's kind of worth it, right? But anyway, go there. Take this survey and uh, help us gain some information about how to get the best advertisers uh, to help us with our show. Uh, again, it's podsurvey.com slash chewing. And uh, that would be greatly appreciated, Chew Crew. Thank you very much. Okay, so that's the business. Now, let's get on to Ivan Asquith, crowdfunding guru. Uh, so sit back and enjoy the chew. Did you make yourself comfortable, Ivan? Uh, yeah. Good. Okay. Are we recording? Yeah, we're recording. Okay. Oh. Yeah. I to chew. Chew. What, do you, what were you eating? That's, uh, I was eating... Chew. I was eating pancakes. Oh, you were? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I say that now. I change it. Just regular pancakes? All right. Wait, did we get a solo chew out of Ivan? Yeah, give me a solo chew. Ooh, that's slower. A that's a wet it's chew. It's slower and it's wetter. Well, I mean, you guys sound like hamsters. Yeah. I mean, but, who yeah. chews that fast? What are, you, what are you eating that you could possibly chew that fast? Blueberries. That's more lip-smacking than <laughs> chewing is what you're I eating. was eating blueberries. I mean, this... That's lip smacking. That uh, is. See, you know what? This this is. Let's introduce our guest, and then we'll get. I want to put a pin in what he just said. <laughs> uh, so okay. We can change the name of the show to "Lip Smacking with Stephen Kevin." Oh, that's pretty good. That's idea. That's pretty good. Okay. No, no, we'll keep chewing it. Yeah. Joining us on the podcast is a very special person to us. A, a dear friend of ours. A, a long, a, a long, business associate, long suffering, long time friend, <laughs> and, and we call him the crowdfunding guru because he, he is. The He's a crowdfunding guru. guru. He's got records because it makes him want to kill himself. Well, maybe, maybe, but that's that's because you're passionate about. Yeah, it. we're going to talk about that, we're gonna ladies and gentlemen. It. Ivan Asquith. 
Ivan Asquith. One, that's the sound of one hand clapping. Yeah. So Ivan Asquith uh, is the is the man behind the Broken Lizard Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign. You know what's Super funny Troopers about it too? is that during this campaign, you know, we we put this, we raised this money for Super Troopers Two. Everyone I know has asked me who the fuck ran your campaign. Yeah. Who did that? Because I know you guys can't do it. We and we can't. We can't. Like, we I know have. it was so organized and. The marketing of it was great, and the look of it was great, and I know you guys can't do that, so yeah. who the hell did it? Yeah. But and he I say Ivan Asquith. He, and, and which is something that Ivan Asquith does not want. Like, he prefers to remain behind the scenes. Ivan Asquith is the, um, is the campaign director of such crowdfunding campaigns as Veronica Mars, which I, I believe is the, uh, holds the record for the most money raised. It does. For, for a film. film. For, for a film, film. yeah. Uh, the Reading Rainbow campaign starring LeVar Burton. Indeed, right, LeVar Burton, and also the Super Troopers. And too. basically, you put those campaigns together for the crowdfunding thing. But let's—I want to talk about crowdfunding first because people might not know what he, what that even is. Like, I guess people know now from us. But like, like I'll talk to my parents, and they're like, "Oh, what is this? Internet money? What? You know, they don't understand. You know? Yeah. But I, I was—I was looking at the facts of it, and when you look at the facts of crowdfunding, and crowdfunding is basically. It using well now it is using the internet. There was a time you know before like there was you know they raised money to, to, for the Statue of Liberty back in like the eighteen hundreds. But the the this is a you bring great crowds of people together to fund various things, whether it's philanthropy or charity or politics. Yeah, Spike sure. Lee, when he was uh, when he was Films. running his Kickstarter campaign, yeah. repeatedly said to the media that he was crowdfunding before there was Kickstarter. Yeah. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean that's maybe that's Got on what the phone with everybody he knew and asked him for money. Yeah. That's what all yeah. independent filmmakers did. But the internet now has, and these crowdfunding platforms now have created a situation where you can do it on a mass scale. And I was looking at the figures; it's unbelievable. Like it's uh, an industry that has grown a thousand percent in the last five years. So listen to these numbers. In the year, I'll only listen to them if you stop. I'm pointing. I'm going to point right because this is a, this is impressive to me. Point my number. ears work and my eyes. Are, you don't need to point at me. In 2010, how are you going to know what he wants to emphasize? In 2010, the uh, crowdfunding internet crowdfunding platforms uh, raised about 100 million bucks. Okay, small change. 2013, five billion dollars. That's a lot more through crowdfunding. 2014, ten billion dollars. That's was raised. Oh, that, wait, that's in crowdfunding. Oh, that is a bigger number. Yeah, yeah. That's way ten more too. billion. That's a thousand percent. Hundred million to ten billion. I'm not really a math guy. And uh, I, I just want to. Uh, can I go yeah. back to the original point, which I wanted to put a pin in? Yeah. I forgot, which was that Ivan has an answer for everything. Right. And we, we're already seeing it here. That every stat you've uh, named, he has. A little, <laughs> he's got a little snark. Sure. That he throws in there. But they're impressive. They're impressive stats. They're, I mean, ten billion dollars stats. was raised through crowdfunding last year. Uh, it said in March of 2014, $60,000 an hour was raised in crowdfunding. Staggering. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, what other, what other uh, phenomenon, what other industry has grown 1,000% in the last five years? Well, and the interesting thing is, I mean, you know, when you go through those sites and you see what people are asking money for, I mean, it ranges from also, you know, like uh, refurbishing churches. Sure. Or expl- the Exploding Kittens card game yeah. or you know short films or comic books i mean it's or products mm-hmm. it's everything but it's become the way to raise money now and and uh, across all things yeah like, like i i was looking at the, the the highest just this this record was just set for the highest raise uh this year this video game star citizen mm-hmm. 
Well, Raised- Star Citizen's an, an ongoing thing. It's been collecting money continuously for okay. years now. $82 million. Yeah, over, but not just this year. It's been right. years and years, and people are in there playing the game as far as I know. Yeah, it's, but for it's, this one thing, $82 yeah. million. For a, there was a cooler that you could buy, buy the coolest, it was called. Thirteen million dollars they raised for it. Yeah, that was that was last fall. They just emailed their uh, contributors yesterday and today to say that not everyone's going to get their cooler this summer a year later. Oh, that's a bummer. That's crowdfunding for you. That's a bummer. But they'll get it. They will get it at yeah. some point. They but, will but you know what? Yeah, they got upgraded. They got all yeah. of the extra features that have been thrown in, no extra cost. Yeah. So it's, you know, there's still a deal there for them. But that's the thing. It's like that is uh, our campaign director because we have the number one campaign director on the planet. Okay. <laughs> Oh, Ivan Asquith. Ivan Asquith. Right. He doesn't let that shit happen. When he, when he promises something, it gets delivered. Right. And I want, we'll talk about that in terms of us. But, but first, I just wanted to make the point of this isn't some little bullshit phenomenon. This is a gigantic phenomenon with, that has all kinds of upside, and we'll talk about that, but where it's going and, and, and how it's taking over the way you raise money. But let's, let's let's ask you this. I'm pointing at you now. I you want to ask with him? I want to get I to ask feel, with. Yeah, no, I feel. The now that we've thing. created the world, here's the world. We've set the world. You can feel the grub on that index finger, can't you? Yeah. And we've created the, a situation where you are a player in this world. How did you get? To, who like? Who are you? And how did you become the ultimate guru of crowdfunding? This is this is Hefferton's like wet dream podcast. Because this is a podcast, he can actually ask questions and learn things and and find things out. Like he, boy, what's wrong with that? that? Not normally. What's wrong with that? No, no. But Kevin Heffernan would, I'm discovering, would be a great investigative reporter. <laughs> but of the sedentary variety, right, I was like say, he, what would he be investigating? He doesn't want to climb shit or get his hands dirty. No, no. Look at me. I'm sitting in a chair. Armchair investigator. I got my feet up. Yeah. My, my shoes are off. Perfect. Like and I'm having bad. a convo. You should you should do a Kickstarter, an Indiegogo or Kickstarter with uh, Elon Musk. Uh-huh. to develop a tube that will bring guests right to your couch. <laughs> that would be great. Pneumatic guesting? Yeah. Well, just, yeah. See, like, Ivan Asked, he's brilliant. He's got <laughs> he something is. to say about it. He, he knows the term for it. All right. How did you become so brilliant? Like, where did, what, how did you become a crowdfunding guru? Were you born speaking? <laughs> um, like, did your head, did that head of yours come out with stubble on it? And Came out with glasses and a beard. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And like, and, and, and a low voice like this? Uh, no, the low voice actually. I that happened over a specific weekend uh, when I was in His balls dropped. When I was in middle school, I came in on a Monday morning and I said hi to my friends, and they actually asked why I was using that fake low voice. Right, and I had no <laughs> idea what they were talking about. Let's start at the beginning. When, how old were you? Oh god! When you first took an interest in numbers, and I mean, because you're a mathematician, correct? Never had any aptitude okay. for math. If it wasn't for the fact that you can actually figure out numbers on a computer, I'm sure I would. But you went to MIT. I did go to MIT, but I went to MIT for media studies. Ah, uh, in an undergraduate for capacity? For, or? for graduate. I went to undergraduate at NYU. Okay, you, right. You still weren't into computers at this point. Oh, uh, no. I was into computers starting in high school. I was the only one in the communications program who was trying to figure out, well, not the only one, but I was the nerdiest of the kids in the communications program. Mm-hmm. So while everyone else was doing TV and radio stuff, I was trying to figure out what the web was because that was like the first couple of years where the web was a, a an thing. up for grabs thing because okay. we had a computer science magnet program in the school, we had access to a lot more equipment than most people did. Okay, so uh, uh, so you go to NYU, and then, I mean, people go to MIT in order to study certain things, not necessarily media, right? Uh, is, it, is it, do they have this? I mean, it's not what the reputation is for. I right. like to tell people, you know, they, uh, there's always, I think, the, the false assumption that going to MIT automatically means that you have a certain level of intelligence. Right. Which is why when people get but that's impressed. that's true. That's true. Mm. Don't try to fight yeah. that. That's an assumption that most people do make, and they are right. Yeah. And so what was the media known. program there? What was the... So the media program I went to because <clears throat> the, um, at the time, 
uh, a guy named Henry Jenkins, who's now a dual professor at USC. They recruited him out of MIT, finally to start a program. But he was sort of the the best known scholar of what I guess at the time you would call fan studies. He'd okay. written books on starting in the 80s and 90s on how fans connect to the things that they love and how they form communities around the things that they care about. And uh, But how to quantify that? Or, uh, no, how to, I mean, how to understand it on a more anthropological okay. level or you know, psychological from the level of why do people do that or sociological, what are they getting out of it? How do they interact with each other? What kind of relationships form? Huh. Um, is, it a, is it an innate desire to have something in common with those around us? Is that? I mean, they're, well... That would be like asking I, why people eat. Some people eat just because they need to survive. Some people eat because they really like food. There are a lot of reasons that, that something like that happens. I'm looking right. at Heffern. Uh, for the, those who can't say, I'm looking at Heffern right now because we, we have a smart guest <laughs> on our hands. Oh, I thought you were looking at Heffern in to see if you could qualify all the reasons that he likes to eat. <laughs> see, that's what I mean. Okay. That's what I mean. Okay. okay. He, has, now, he has a special brand of snark that sure. I appreciate. I jibe with it. I got you. I don't know. But let's He's use it. Let's use it judiciously. Let's not let it derail our conversation. Otherwise, Kevin know? has a lot I'm more. Let it derail anything. Okay. Otherwise, Kevin has a lot more editing to do later. I know. That's really, what he's trying to avoid. I'm okay. trying to figure out this media studies program at MIT. It's it's it doesn't necessarily jive. Well, so, so here's my, so here's the funny thing, right? Like yeah. I when I was an undergrad at NYU, I was in a program there called Gallatin, the yeah. Gallatin School of Individualized Study. Okay, which sounds ponzi i know yeah. uh, the whole point of it was that there was no required curriculum basically right you had to get a certain balance of kinds of courses but you could take whatever you wanted from the entirety of all of the programs at nyu and construct it into your own topic and get the courses you thought you needed to build an education around the topic that you cared about okay so my topic ended up being uh it was multifaceted but it was kind of an intersection of how the internet and community as issues work together yeah so we were taught all the way through to look at how everything's connected to everything else rather than to think about science as one thing and math as another thing mm. and history as another thing. But even, um, I mean, it, it sounds to me like you were drawn to this certain topic, though, in terms of like... I mean, I've always liked media. I've always liked right. community. I've always liked understanding why people connect with other people. Right. And, you know, the internet for pretty much the exact span... I, I sort of came of age at the same time as the internet. Yeah. Um, you know, it was turning into a thing that people could play with while I was in high school. Sure. And... So a lot of my understanding of how communities form has been shaped by watching it become part of how communities are formed. And did you go to MIT with that in mind, that that was something so, that you wanted to well, further so, study? So it's funny. The, the, way, the way that I probably ended up at MIT was I, by the end of college, I was writing articles occasionally for Salon and Slate, okay. the, the websites. Um, Just unsolicited, or were you getting paid to, to uh, do this? They were paid. Oh, wow. Um, okay. I mean, I... They weren't solicited. I took okay. the ideas to those sites and pitched them. And then, and the general nature of these, are what were in this kind of branded uh, uh, intersection community. of media and technology and entertainment. Okay. So the the day that I graduated from college, um, I published I think my second article with Salon, and it was about that was uh, 1999. Yeah. Um, no, 2003. Which you never know it now, given how history played out. But in 2003, a lot of the media was kind of breathlessly calling that the year of the Matrix because the right. first Matrix movie had come out in, I think, 99. Yeah. Um, and everyone had eagerly anticipated the sequels and they weren't just putting out two sequels in the same year. They were coming out in like May and December. Right. But they had this whole strategy where because they had so much story they wanted to tell, they were going to release a video game that featured a main character from the movies leaving you know and covered her story from the time she left screen in the second movie until the time she returned to screen in the third movie and it would right. have like an hour of video footage in it and they got 
anime directors from around the world, famous anime directors, to do these short animated films that filled in parts of the backstory and introduced new characters. And they got comic book artists to do two volumes of a comic book that filled in more backstory. And so they were they weren't just building out kind of the movie franchise. They were building out across all of these platforms an entire a world, a comprehensive universe. world. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Uh, Trying to figure out how they were going to slowly going to ruin that first movie <laughs> with their sequels. Oh, they, and the funny thing is they didn't have to figure it out. It didn't happen slowly. It happened immediately. Yeah. 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 Um, but I, so I was, I was interested in that and it looked to me when I was in college, uh, I was reading all these articles that came out that year about it and they all fell into basically two camps. There were people who said, this isn't about storytelling at all. This is basically just a new way of bilking people out of a lot of money and sure. it's a marketing tactic and now you can't even just pay for two movie tickets. You have to buy all this other shit that you don't want if you even want to understand what's happening in the movie. Right. And other people were like, no, this has nothing to do with marketing. This is all about a new brave world of storytelling and it's changing the way that we have stories and fandom. Sure. And they were just completely going at each other as to which of those two which options Which camp were true. you in? Well, that was what my article was about. Okay. It, it said that Posing the question as if those were two different things was just fundamentally misunderstanding what was happening. Yeah. So the argument I made was that we were past a point where marketing and storytelling were different things and that a good story is its own marketing. Right. Mm. And that, It always is. And that mm. no one pays attention to marketing if it's not adding some kind of value or creating some kind of content. Yeah. So, I mean, that, I remember one of the most interesting statistics I saw in graduate school was about Tim Burton's Batman franchise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I always butcher this statistic, so I'm probably going to make it sound way more impressive than it actually was. But... Uh, if you looked at the entirety of the money made from Tim Burton's first Batman film and you factored in not just box office and international box office and DVD sales and TV syndication windows, but also lunch boxes and action figures and sure. t-shirts and the comic book revival and all the of that stuff. The ancillary stuff. Yeah. Right. What struck me was that the movie itself in all of its forms only accounted for, I think, 6% of the money that was made wow. off of that yeah. movie. Wow. In which case, you could look at the feature-length movies and say they were nothing but advertisements yeah, for commercial. the entire network of stuff that existed. Right. Uh, it was a great article called Holy Commodity Fetish Batman. Right. Um, <laughs> well, that was, that was the truth, I mean, in film anyway, was that it yeah. uh, became that the D, the theatrical release was simply a commercial for the DVD. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and to say that that means it's not a story in its own right is stupid. It's just that it no longer... It's not easy to draw a line and say, well, that's just an advertisement and this is right. the real thing. Everything is its right. own advertisement. It's like, uh, like, something like Star Wars is the, is the quintessential example of that. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, I, um, so I was interested in that idea and I'd written this article about it saying, you know, everyone's missing the point. What we should be asking is if there's any difference left between good storytelling and good marketing. Right. And at the time, I don't remember how this came to I think the editor and I agreed that we needed some kind of snappy catchphrase for it. So we ended up calling it synergistic storytelling. Okay. And then I it's went appropriate. About, it's yeah. accurate. Yeah. There you go. Storytelling synergy. Right. So I, you know, took a year off. I traveled a little bit and I was thinking about grad school and I was basically down to this program at MIT that was about fan studies and media and kind of well known for being a place to think about how media was changing and how new business and entertainment models were emerging. Uh, or this program at NYU where I'd already gone, but they had a graduate right. program called Interactive Telecommunications. Um and what? And these are just the programs where you know we try to get into. When we were in college. We go and watch movies all the time, right? And this is yeah, this is well, real I, shit, right? And here's the thing: you know, it's 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 a half joke to say to people, oh, "I went to MIT for poetry." Right. What I actually went to MIT for was television. Television. I mean, my grad thesis was on the TV show Lost. <laughs> right. Um, right. As a, as a business model. I think I would right. like it there at MIT. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you wouldn't yeah. be able to get in though, bro. I don't think I could. <laughs> I get into MIT? Do you think? Look at him. <laughs> Look at him now. Here comes some. Snark. He's like no. He's he's right now. The computer in his head is going. Doo, 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 so anyway, doo. when I was thinking about MIT, <laughs> right. uh, what I you know what I was reluctant about was that it felt grad school at all kind of felt self indulgent to me. Okay. I was like, 
Because you thought you'd get out in the world and... Uh... Well, I felt like, what is it going to change? If I go there and spend two more years in school reading theory and talking with people about these like abstract ideas sure. of how it changes society, what is actually going to be any different because of that? How is that right. not just me like navel-gazing for two more years to Always the knock on grad school. That's always the knock on all grad schools. Sure. But yes. Well, and, and, but, yeah. but it was a real concern for me, and especially yeah. immediate. You know, if you go to a vocational program, if you go to engineering, it's easy to understand how you're going to apply that to something. Yep. But so, you know, the joke uh, that always exists in, in humanities education is that when you're graduating on your final week of school, they teach you a phrase that is specific to your industry or your profession. So the last thing you learn before you leave medical school is the Hippocratic Oath and, you know, first do no harm. The last thing you learn how to say before you leave law school is, Your Honor, I object. And the last thing you learn to say before you leave English and the humanities is, Would you like fries with that? <laughs> and, you know, I was thinking a lot about that. And I was like, What, right. what are you actually going to That's a humanities to? joke. That's right. right. It's a right. humanities joke. But I'm, I'm, I was like, What do you. It was the idea of going and studying this stuff was interesting to me, yeah. but what I was actually going to do with it was totally beyond me. And I remember I, I because this is sort of how I like to do things, I went to a an online like Q and A with the head of the program where he right. was talking to prospective students, and everyone else was asking like, "Will I be able to take classes in this?" And like these gen- gentle, you know, informational questions. And I just went in and I was like, why is this not self-indulgent? Like, why is this program not a total waste of everybody's time and energy and money that yeah. just exists to keep people, like, locked in this tower where they don't do anything? Right. And he, his answer to me was, I think, the reason that I ended up choosing to go to that program. He said that he agreed that the moment for him he had realized that he could have a real impact was when he testified in Senate during the Columbine hearings about whether video games could actually be considered responsible for violence, which led in turn to policy that determined what kind of video games would be yeah. deemed safe and saleable. Um, but that the whole program, he said, wasn't he wasn't interested in running a humanities program. He was interested in what he called an applied humanities program, which was to say he he felt that the program would only be succeeding if in everything that we studied, we looked at it explicitly in terms of how that could then be put to work changing in the real something world. that we thought in yeah. the world wasn't working yeah. or you know wasn't as good as it could be. Right. And that sort of sold me on it. But the other thing that sold me on that over the, the NYU program is that when I first met him, you know, his reputation preceded him. He had written these books that I had heard about. Um, and when I met him, he was finishing a book that went on to become, I think, probably his, his best-known book to date, Convergence Culture. Tell me his name again. Henry Jenkins. Henry Jenkins, got it. Uh, and so he was finishing up this book about how old media practices and new media practices were changing and how audiences and creators were converging and there were more direct relationships and how... You know, the notion of, of activism and entertainment community and all these things were kind of merging together. Right. And he had a chapter in it uh, that was entirely about this concept that he was calling transmedia storytelling. And when I sat down to, to meet with him in person for the first time, he said, oh, your name seems really familiar. And I was like... <laughs> Synergistic I, story I, well, guy. I was, I was like, I can't fathom why, <laughs> right. probably because I sent you an application with my name on it and you're right. just remembering that. He was like, no, 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 there, there, was, there was something else. And you've got to... Remember that at this point in my life, I've written like three articles. Sure. That's not a, a prestigious <laughs> publishing career. Right. And he's like, no, 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 hold on. And he pulled out the manuscript for this book that was almost finished and showed me in the middle of the chapter about transmedia storytelling that one of the headers for the sections was synergistic storytelling. Nice. Mm. And he had called me I hope Salon, he cited you. Salons Ivan Asquith. I hope he cited like you. He did. Okay, he did good. cite me. Good. Um, but uh, he was like, this is a topic that interested you. Are you still interested in this? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to figure out what this means for you know, both fans who really care about the entertainment properties or the worlds that they get immersed in, like Star Wars fans, and what it means from a business perspective, like is this going to be the future of stories or is this sort of a temporary phase? He was like, well, do you want to come work on that here? You wouldn't be the only one I'm working on it and a bunch of other people here are interested in the same question. And so right. I ended up at MIT. And the, the That sounds main, like a heaven to you. <clears throat> it was pretty awesome. And, you know, I mean, yeah. like what grad school consisted of would be 
classes during the day that helped me try and make sense of things that I was thinking through. And then I'd go home at night and watch like eight episodes of a TV show that I was binge watching. Right. Like I went through seven seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer <laughs> in I think a month and a half right. because I needed to write about it. Like that was the best possible. But did you like, did you need to write about it, it was, in terms it was pretty of pretty awesome? Like what, like, like you said, like what's the, where do you draw the line between, oh, this is cool. I get to watch Buffy this and actually applied Something useful uh, about it? Yeah, something applied <clears throat> to the world. I mean, so the reason I was, you mean applied humanities? Sure. Applied humanities. Yeah. The reason I was looking at that was because uh, the Buffy fandom had been like a really interesting case study. Joss Whedon was one of the first right. showrunners who went onto the internet to a forum that fans had set up to discuss the work he was creating and would actually weigh in himself and talk to them and tell them what he was thinking about it. Yeah. But none of that meant anything to me if I didn't know the show that it was talking about. So in this sure. case, I was going so I could understand this new pattern that was emerging for creators to talk directly to their fans about stuff. Right, right. I mean, that was uh, something that happened with Club Dread was, you know, the blog site that was set up. Yeah. I think that was the first time we saw that where now we were interacting with a community of people who were Super Troopers fans who were waiting for this, for Club Dread to come out. And certainly the first time I saw the phenomenon of people who were actually were on the same team, start fighting with each other about anything and everything. That's a pretty common fandom thing, for sure. <laughs> yeah, but like, uh, you know, but not even about us. It just seemed to be, a, it was like a playground mm-hmm. where the community, like, you know, the city was uh, Super Trooper City. Yeah. I mean, you guys were the gravity that pulled everybody into the same place, but once they were there, they went back to talking about all the normal shit they would talk about. Sure. Anyway. Yeah. Sure. But then, and then they started like a lizard palooza. Right, <laughs> which we did, which was an event someplace, and we did not go to it. But what we heard was that it was sounds, just like a big sounds uh, horrifying party, fuck fest. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're going to have a tribute event, that might as well be it. Yeah, it might as well be so, fuck fest, I right? So. It's either that or like a whole bunch of people playing air guitar and pretending to do covers of songs you don't like. <laughs> true, true. Yeah. Okay. All right, so you get out of MIT. So I get out of MIT, and you you want to apply this stuff to your career, to a career. So the thought at MIT had been, I thought that I was going to be headed pretty much for L.A. because that's where entertainment and pop culture yeah. happens. Yeah. Uh, and everybody... I'd been a lifelong East Coaster at that point. Everyone right. was like, oh, you're going to fucking hate L.A. Do you have an idea of what you're going to do when you step out of MIT? Um, I knew that I wanted... At the time, I thought I wanted to be part of helping build these kind of cross-platform, immersive entertainment worlds that span mm-hmm. multiple platforms and let fans choose how involved they want to be and what parts of the story they care about. So in terms of like, you know, film versus video games versus literature type thing? Those things, but also how they all fit together. But that's I, the was, thing. I was less the interested whole in being world, the one the to create a video all. game yeah. or create or write a novel mm-hmm. and more interested in being like one of the architects who said, okay, we're going to plan to put out you know this video game and here's the function it's going to serve sure. and it's going to fill these details in which are missing from the tv show which in turn is going to give people like you know an answer that gets paid off in the book if they want to look for it mm-hmm. that sort of thing yeah um, okay so you get out of there and where so, do you, where well, do you so, go so i was almost out of there and the plan had been to go to la yeah but one of the pieces of research i guess that i did while i was in uh, grad school was that i wanted to track down people who were actually working on lost in different capacities so i okay was lucky enough that I came out to LA and I actually got to work with the showrunners or not work with them, but I, I met them. They were willing to give time to a grad student who right. was talking. To Damon Lindelof, uh, him and Carlton Cuse. Right. Yeah, He's good friends with Soder. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah I did yeah. know that because yeah. uh, I remember Lindelof almost made it into to join us for the telethon. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, so wait, did you meet him? You spent time with him? Uh, I talked with them a little bit back then. Okay, uh, and has it had the series ended by then or no? No, no, no it was okay. in its third or fourth season. It oh, was okay. like halfway through the run. Okay. Got um, it. 
And uh, so I went and talked with them, but I also tried to track down, you know, the people at ABC who were responsible for the marketing of the movie and the right. people who were working on the novel that came out that was supposedly set in the world of the show and the people who were designing the video game for Ubisoft and all this. Like, I was trying to look at all of the people involved. Yeah. And one of the things I was really interested in, I don't know if you guys watched the show. I did. So after the first season, yeah. there was a website for Oceanic Airlines that looked as if it was the official Oceanic Airlines website. Yeah, and that was a big tool. Like People yeah, would go like to it. And, and you could, yeah. you could yeah. quote-unquote, hack into it and find passenger manifests and look for clues and look in the source code right. to find out things that may or may not be clues about what was happening on the show. And the whole basis of Lost, the thing that made me interested in it, was that it was a show where only half of what was interesting was happening on screen. Yeah, Just as interesting was the fact that in between every episode, just like, say, Twin Peaks 10 years earlier people were going online and spending the entire week in between episodes pulling in every reference they could think of from Wikipedia and debating right. you know, with hundreds of pages of writing right. exactly what they thought was going on and what kind of statement they thought it was making sure. and what it was referencing. And I think that happens a lot more even now. Oh, yeah. But I mean, at that the was, time, that was... I mean, it's like Game of Thrones. You could spend exactly. a, a week reading about... You know. Well, and this is, this is one of the interesting things. Yeah. I would say the last 10 or 15 years has been the normalizing of what was once extreme fan behavior yeah. into mainstream casual behavior like that's basically what's happened as the internet became more and more right mainstream is everybody started acting the way that fans used to be yeah acting it was just fans had to go to extra lengths to do it back then because everyone wasn't trying to help them and the internet what did not exist but now that it's easy everybody's like oh well i guess that's that's the normal behavior to engage you just type in game of thrones you can read 50 articles on last week's episode i actually which sometimes i do i did i did it i did it yesterday and i went to the game Game of thrones Thrones. it led me to a like i guess somebody came out with a map uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Of the Game of Thrones land, where you can now follow oh, any jo- character's journey all over the yeah the land, and it scales it's it It's like all. those old family circus cartoons. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 <laughs> the, 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 I used to love those. Yeah, yeah, those yeah I still love those. Those, those are great. But those were the great, those were my favorite of the episodes of Family Circle. Right, of course. <laughs> family Circus. Family <laughs> Circus. Either one. Right. Yeah. Family Circle sounds way too right. Christian. Um, and one more f- Family Circus thing. Yeah. I know this is going to drive Kevin crazy. <laughs> I don't even look at him. Remember the name of the dog in uh, Family Circus? Lemmy. No. Was, it, was, was it Queen? No, Queen? I wish it was. I wish it was better. Was it patches? No, it wasn't Patches. I can go all day, so just tell me. Okay, it was Barfy. Oh, it was Barfy, which was short for Bartholomew. <laughs> oh, really? I didn't, yeah, I that didn't was, know that. that was, it was short for Bartholomew. Barfy. Yeah, Barfy. Yeah, the kids, it was, the dog's name was Bartholomew, but the kids called it Barfy because okay. they couldn't say Bartholomew. Bartholomew. I like Barfy. that. Yeah. That's one of those real life things that, you know, the the guy, what's his name, Bill, who who created it? Family Bill Quimby? Quisby? I can't remember. Quit. Yeah, that's probably his real dog's name. Out of, out of, but, but you guys have done a service because out of the 15 people who listen to your podcast, one of them is going to win pub trivia at some point by knowing sure, that. by Barfy. Yeah, that's right. That's Barfy. Um, um, okay, okay. So, so anyway, Lost, you're, was, you're so exploring so that, Lost. So that website came right. up. Yeah. Wait, so, okay, so, so now, <coughs> can I just ask you a question? What You just did. Go ahead. God damn it. See, this is what I mean. This is our, this is our thing. So something like that, that, how many people are working on that? Is it, I mean, I found our crowdfunding campaign to be fascinating because I always thought it was like a big, elaborate um, setup, whereas it turned out to be one guy with a couple of people and creating... Well, and the five of you, but yeah. yeah. And the five of us, but you were really doing all of the work. So something like that, the Oceanic... Airlines website. So, I mean, so, so Oceanic Airlines, I went and tracked down the agency. They had hired a, a digital marketing agency that had okay. made that. And they were based in Brooklyn, which made them a lot easier to visit from Cambridge than most of the teams that were in L.A. So I went down to this agency, which was called Big Spaceship, and mm-hmm. I spent a couple days on site with, you know, it was probably, that site was probably a team of, in any capacity, maybe four to six people. 
you know, it wasn't it wasn't super elaborate, but you had like a graphic designer and one person writing code and one person kind of managing the timeline of the project. And how are you gaining access? Like, uh, I just it, called them and told them what I was doing and said, "Hey, can I? You know, I'm really curious about this project you did because it had said on their website that they, you know, that, that was in their portfolio of things they had helped with." Okay. And yeah. everyone likes to have their dick sucked. Let me. Sure, sure. You know what I'm saying, bro. Yeah. No, I know. Everyone I don't does. think there's. I'm trying to think there's any exception to that rule. No, I don't know. If there is. But nothing comes readily. Uh, whether it's a big spaceship or Damon Lindelof or whoever. Everyone lets so I called these guys and I was like, hey, can I come in and, and ask you a little bit about it and kind of how you thought of your place? And when I was there, a lot of what I was asking them was, you know, you don't know where this show is going. Right. But you've been given some responsibility for like crafting clues that are going to be part of how people yeah, sure. debate what's happening. And they're going to refer to things that you came up with not necessarily knowing anything about where the show is going. And they're going to use them as evidence of where the show is probably going in their minds. So yeah. How do you think about that responsibility? How did you work with the creators? Do you, you know, how much freedom did you feel to make stuff up at random as opposed to needing to take leads from the main story? And you know, they answered those questions as best they could, and I got I got some interesting kind of behind the scenes scoop. One of which I can tell you in a second. It's an amazing story if you want. But when I was done there, I went back and finished you know my remaining year in summit grad school. Uh, and the other thing that comes back into the story later is that while I was in grad school, the other show I was looking at besides Lost was a show, you know, I was looking at Lost as a case study of a show that was super successful in engaging its fans across as many platforms as they could handle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for a counterpoint, I was looking at another show that was perpetually in danger of cancellation and was doing almost nothing across platforms, which was called Veronica Mars. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and as part of that, I went out and spent almost a month in San Diego and because I had a background in graphic design, was able to get work on the set and like ended up as part of the crew for two or three weeks which gave me a chance to interview people on the show and and talk to them and how do you pitch that you're like i want to i want to i'm trying to study you guys as an example of how a show is failing at a certain well i went after the one person on the crew who had a very strong reputation among the show's fans for being accessible to them which was their graphic designer okay who was a guy about my age and you know he agreed to meet me for coffee to talk about what his interactions with fans of the show had been like and then he's like hey do you want to see the set for a couple minutes and we went back, you know, next door to where we've been having coffee, and he showed me the set, and then he showed me the amount of work he had to do as the sole graphic designer on the show. And I said, "Well, I'm around in town for the next week. I have a background in graphic design. Do you want some help with that? Because it seems like you've got more than one person's worth of work." And he said, "Sure, if you want to stick around and help." Did you like the show though, or was it just that you were interested? Yeah, I liked, I liked the show well enough. I thought it was clever. Yeah. For Did what you it watch was doing. every episode of the show? Uh, I think I had started watching it on. DVD or download. Some friends had put it in front of me, and I'd like binge watched it over a summer. I hadn't been watching it on TV. Was there enough of a kind of peripheral world, like outside of the TV show, the stuff that you're talking about in other platforms that made it interesting to no, you? That, no, that that was the thing. Okay. They hadn't really done much of that Got stuff okay. because they were approaching it basically in the more traditional marketing. It's sure. supposed to be marketing, and it's meant to tell you the show exists, not to expand the world of the show. Okay. Um, and so that planted a seed in terms of we'll, well come back to that. But I went in, and I went in and pitched yeah. stuff to them that summer while I was there. Like they, okay. you know, the characters were just moving from high school to college, and MySpace was a huge thing because it was just emerging. Yeah. And I had pitched this whole idea, which we almost did, I think, until I don't remember what happened. Maybe the studio killed it or something. We had started setting up like official pages for the college that they were going to be going to and like for the frat for the frats and sororities that the characters were going to be in because those were going to be part of the plot and are you pitching the creator uh i eventually pitched to the creator initially okay. i just been pitching it to people like pas and stuff who were whoever would listen who were handed off to yeah basically <laughs> right. pretty, i was pitching it to the janitor yeah. uh, and, he, and he loved it he right. really and thought it was a strong idea he thought he it was a great idea pass on it. so all of this said back yeah. to your actual question yeah. which was how did this become part of what i did out of grad school yeah. when i was getting close to graduating i was a couple months out from finishing at mit and so I was starting to think about what my plan would be and if I'd move to L.A. or what I would do. Um, the CEO of that agency called me and said, hey, we've been thinking a lot about the questions you came in and asked us 
during those couple of days you spent here and it it was useful to us in thinking through what work we're doing i know you weren't looking to like be in marketing but would you have any interest in coming here and asking questions for money instead of for grades <laughs> yeah, i was like sure hmm. i mean yeah 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 uh and he, you know and, and i had never made like an adult salary at that point. So he threw out a number, which in marketing, you know, was a pretty like acceptable starting salary. Right. But for me, I was like, Oh, hello. Oh, I thought that was like six or seven years down the line. So Uh sure. I I was like, I'll probably only come for like a year because my plan is to go out to LA, but I, it would certainly be fascinating to work with you guys and learn more about what you do and whatever. So I came down to Brooklyn. Put that microphone. Put that. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Get up in there. Yeah, get up. So I, uh, so I ended up moving to Brooklyn and becoming one of the first strategists at this agency. Okay. Um, cause strategy was kind of a new thing for them. Right. And instead of a year, I ended up there for four and ended up being the head of strategy and wow. hiring a strategy department and that sort of thing. And it was nice cause I got to, during that time I got to work on some things kind of like what they had done with Oceanic Airlines. I worked on very, very stuff speedy. for okay. a bunch of different movies. Uh, there was, there was one project, the sad truth of, of working in that field is often the stuff that you make around a movie or a TV show is worlds better than sure. the show or movie <laughs> sure. deserves. Sure. So we were working on uh, 2012, The Disaster Pick. Yeah, okay. And I've seen it. I saw <coughs> it in the theater. And so, well, okay. then you've seen part of the work that we did because okay. we decided, we created an entire back, after we read the script, we proposed an entire backstory that there had been this like secret human run organization called the Institute for Human Continuity that had been in, in place since the 1970s and operating in secret to prepare for what would happen if the world actually ended in 2012 as the minds had predicted. And right. we built out like a website for it and hired actors to play like all of the different people in the <laughs> photos and in, like a whole series of videos. And in the, in the movie, one of the disaster shots actually ends up destroying a billboard for the Institute of human continuity that we had designed. So that okay. was like the tie back for us. What was uh, it? The filmmakers saying, fuck <coughs> those guys or was it? No, it was, uh, it was okay. they okay. <laughs> want Sony who was the, releasing the picture. They were an awesome partner on this. They were really excited by the idea that we were building the world out rather than just, right creating disposable promotional information about the movie. Right. So they wanted to make it feel like the connection went both ways and kind of to any fans who spent the time to look into all this stuff happening online, they wanted to acknowledge in the movie, this is a real thing, not just some disposable marketing crap. There was actually an even lower budget project that I was maybe my favorite that I got to work on because I had like a designer and a copywriter and me and we had to execute this entire thing. Uh, A&E was doing a multi-night miniseries remake of the Andromeda Strain. Yeah. The Michael Crichton novel, yeah. which is, you know, a great disaster kind of story. And it's set in this town in the middle of nowhere where an alien virus comes down and to keep it from spreading, the U.S. government puts the whole town under quarantine because everybody in the town dies like within 24 hours. Right. Um, and I remember we got brought in by A&E to talk with them about something that was already underway or to see if there was extra stuff we could do. And they, there had been this idea for um, a website where it would basically be like a VR version of the town and you could walk around and nobody was there and you didn't know why and you could go into stores and knock things off of the shelves in 7-Eleven. Yeah. Which exciting as that may or may not sound to you cost a lot of money to make something like that especially sure, back sure. then <laughs> and i was like what what value is anybody going to like how is that going to make the show more exciting how is it going to make it more fun how is it even going to make people want to see it yeah uh and they were like what what would you guys propose we do instead and so we developed this entire backstory where there was a college student uh from the town away in journalism school at berkeley who's on the phone with his little sister when like something goes horribly She's leaving him a voicemail when something goes wrong and she like screams and the phone goes dead. And then he realizes over the next couple of days that he can't get in touch with anybody from the town and then starts this investigation with anyone who will help him on the internet into what's going on in his town. Cause he finds out it's under government blockade and he ends up interacting via Facebook and LinkedIn and email. And I am with a bunch of the major characters and with a huge 
portion of people in the audience, and you could email this guy, and he'd write back to you and all this okay, stuff. Okay, so so it's not you. It's not a POV thing. He's actually he's a character, and you're watching an actor. He's or? not. He, no, he's not in the. He's movie at all he's an extra character we made up no i know but like we took photos of him once or okay. twice uh using a developer in our office yeah. um but then all of the writing like i would go on instant messenger for a couple hours a day and role play the part of this guy <laughs> and talk with any fans who were like what's going on what's happening right now <laughs> yeah. right, right. Um, which was crazy yeah. and and one of my favorite things about crazy it, because people r- thought you were real well and here's the weird thing right like i i always try to think the best of humanity yeah. but at the bottom of literally every page on this site there was a legal notice that said this is a work of fiction for entertainment purposes only right and yet the emails that we received uh at this guy's at this fictional character's email account were mind-blowing and they generally fell into two camps there were people who said hey you know i know this is probably like all some big like story or some marketing thing but this is fucking awesome i just want you to know that i'm like following along and i hope you find your family and i hope they're okay (laughs) we got one from a a college class that said that they had preempted an entire week's discussion in their philosophy and ethics class to discuss what was happening in our story knowing it was probably a story yeah but still wanting to talk about what they should do if they were in that situation and then we also got emails from people who said, I don't know who the fuck you think you are, but if you're trying to scare innocent people into believing that we're all in danger, I hope you fucking burn in hell. When I find out who you are, I'm going to come and show you what it's like to be scared. Jesus. We got an email from someone who said, my, my mother felt so bad for your bullshit blog, reading it that she had a heart attack out of fear for you, and now you're going to pay the medical bills for her. Jesus <laughs> I was like, That's War of the World shit. Right it was total War of the World yeah. shit. And so yeah. I, I, was, you know, I was fascinated by the only difference between the people who loved us and the people who hated us. We weren't doing anything different to any of those people. No. It was just what they thought we were after. If they thought we were trying to make them feel or look stupid, they hated us. And if they thought we were trying to entertain them, they loved us. And did A&E appreciate that? Uh, did, did, did A&E loved happen? it. it, was, it, it, was, it was, no, I mean, the performance of the... It was like their best opening for a miniseries they had ever okay. had. And my, I mean, my, my premium moment, the one that I loved, was uh, this, you know, the fictional town that had been invented in the movie. And the movie was done. It was completely in the can before right. we ever saw a frame of it. And so we couldn't change anything about the movie. We just had to work with what was there. Uh, and the movie had been moved to a fictional town in Utah called Piedmont. Yeah. So our entire thing was called What Happened in Piedmont. Right. Uh, <laughs> a Utah local television affiliate got so many people calling their station asking if they knew where Piedmont, Utah was and if it was true that there was some kind of government quarantine happening there. Sure. That we have a video clip that ran two-thirds of the way through a campaign of one of their anchors looking straight at the camera like when they come back from a news break and saying, breaking news, the town of Piedmont, Utah, is now under a military blockade for reasons that are not being shared with the American public. And then, like, they hold for two beats, and then she says, or at least that's what one blogger wants you to think. And then she goes on <laughs> to talk about the fact that it's viral marketing for, oh, okay. for this project. So they didn't buy so into we, of it. Course, they were... Well, but she, she said they were doing it because so many people had called the sure. station asking okay. if it was a real thing. Yeah. And we, in turn, took that clip of her saying it and turned it around and put it back sure. into the story and sure. said, holy shit, the news just, you know, <laughs> like, now everybody knows. Now it's real. Um, right. Yeah, that's but it's, great. It's amazing because I mean, it's like this in video games too, which we were talking about with with Pamela Horton. Um, you know, these the massive uh, the MMOs, mm-hmm. um, the massive multiplayer online games, and uh, how you know it used to be just in terms of a movie, it's or it's just the piece itself, or the video game, it's just the game itself. But now, how these things have expanded into the gigantic world. Well, they're franchises now is, is the thing. Like, it's, you know, and it makes sense, especially when you're the size of, say, Disney, who is now, I mean, they're about to gear up for a probably an infinitely long Star Wars blitz until the world's just too tired of it to keep spending money on it. Yeah, yeah. But when you own all of those things, 
everything you every decision you make financially you're trying to figure out how it can make you as much money as possible that's the cynical side of it or the yeah. financial side you know if if i'm gonna spend all of that money making those movies then i better find a way to reap some value for that for my theme park division for my publishing division for my toy division for whatever sure well that's that's for, the brass is saying that but for the creative people but the beauty of it is yeah on the creative side what they've act, one of the, i think one of the beautiful things that's happened in the last five or ten years and i think even you know even if you're getting tired of like the marvel machine and all the interconnectedness of all of those movies all of that, what they're doing, what Star Wars is doing, what you know, franchises are doing in general, is they're realizing that things they didn't used to care about. They used to have no problem contradicting themselves. Like yeah. the, you know, Star Wars history involved hundreds of novels and comic books coming out after the first three movies before the second three movies came yeah. out. Yeah, exactly. And all of those details were considered... I mean, George didn't think any of them mattered. He considered none of them binding and none of them canonical. They were right. made up by random authors who were hired. And Which I could never figure out. I read a ton of those series. Exactly. And, and fans, like, got, and fans like, would be furious. Like, there was, when, yeah. when Disney bought Lucasfilm and took over the company and announced them, one of the big announcements they had to make that a lot of people got really upset about was that they were rendering all of the books and novels yeah. and comics non-canonical. They were going to move them into a new category called like Star Wars Legends or something. Uh-huh. And they were doing that because they didn't want to take the main part of the franchise, these movies, and have to be beholden to a million small decisions that had been made by these random authors with no vision for where the whole thing was going. So yeah. they had to clear the deck again. And fans were furious. They were like, so I've spent thousands of dollars late. and decades of my life investing yeah. in memorizing every detail of this fictional universe because I believed in it and wanted it to be something important. And you're telling me that none of that ever mattered. Right. And now you want me to care about this new stuff that what matters more instead. Right. Um, and so one of the things I think all of these franchises are realizing is that you know, in grad school, like the, the over-fancy academic term was narrative integrity. But, like, things that no one used to care about except hardcore fans would be like, oh, I'm sorry, I think that if you go back to episode three, you'll find that that's not actually what happened. Right. You know, <laughs> right. those people, those people have good. gone from being, like, the periphery and the losers who live in their parents' basements to being the ones put in charge of ensuring narrative continuity for entire franchises sure. because there's actually a financial repercussion. If you don't pay attention to those details, fans stop emotionally investing the same way because they feel like you don't care enough to get it right. I, I Why should probably they care true. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, that's no. what always pissed me off about the DC universe. Well, like still DC, universe, DC universe. They, they would wipe entire time. things and say, "Oh, that's you know, in another world," and then they reboot things, and you're like, it feels well, like "What cheating. about that fucking dude?" If you care, it feels like cheating, right? And For so, sure. and so to try to avoid that. I mean, that's with Star Wars was always my thing. Was like, I read a lot of those books, and you know, a lot of those books were became the basis of some of those TV, like the cartoon, like the Clone Wars cartoons and all that kind of stuff, uh, the animated series and things like that. But there's, you never knew if there was someone overseeing. The various well, there, structures the, of that shit. And the truth is, and I, you know, I can speak to Star Wars because that was kind of the next chapter of my career after... That's, right, so you left there and Big went Spaceship. over so I to Lucas. Left, I left Big Spaceship and ended up as head of digital media for Lucasfilm. Which for seems like the perfect thing for you because... It that, was. I mean, there was... I, I had no the desi- trailblazers in this world. <clears throat> I had no desire to move across the country. Yeah. And like, I was actually pretty happy at that point at Big Spaceship and I was enjoying what I was working on. But I had read about Star Wars in grad school. It had been... Sure. It's, it had always been the standing case study for fans engaging with a media property and building their life around it yeah and the chance to to help be a part of that and even if i didn't get to change anything to see from kind of a front row see seat and get paid to be there yeah. learning what it was like to you know work on something that mattered that much to that many people yeah. was kind of a no-brainer so i ended up at lucasfilm for two or three years and and i can tell you that when i first got there there what you know there were some people interestingly they had hired two of the biggest super fans uh from, from internet <laughs> really? sites um, were there any original people earlier. there from I mean George was still, like George was my boss for the first well he was he involved year in and a half that? I was there uh, figuring that stuff well, out so he wasn't or? involved in the novels and the comics and all that stuff he was yeah. involved in the TV series the animated show the Clone Wars well, I mean, like someone, had a, someone had the vision at one point and that's probably the franchise that did it 
to realize that there's more money and yeah. and breadth yep, to what you can the, do outside the of the licensing. movies. Who was still there right? as well? Yeah, okay. that was the head of licensing. But he, he had a guy named that Howard Rothman. Before. That's what I mean. Like yeah. I think he had. He I mean, George's smart. You know, everybody says George's smartest move was the yeah. one he was making the original deal, the merch with Fox. He said, "Fine, you can give me this terrible profit share on the movie, but I want unilaterally all rights to all merchandise moving forward." Right. And they thought the movie was going to be a joke, so they were like, "Yeah, yeah. have fun with your hundred percent of nothing." Right. Uh, and of course, it went on. You know, by the time I was there, one of my favorite facts that I was told in my initiation into the company was that some. When I was there, which I guess I arrived there in 2011, somewhere on the planet, every like four and a half seconds, a Lego Star Wars kit is sold uh-huh. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, <laughs> right. always. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, there's a stat like that for the DVDs and all this stuff. Like it just, for better or for worse, it, it mints money. Like yeah. It means that much to people. And, yeah. you know, the stories that I heard while I was there were incredible. We had people, the number of, of emails or messages or fans I met at conventions we organized who would say things like, you know, I wouldn't have survived cancer if Star Wars didn't give me <laughs> right. this mental notion <laughs> right. that, like, you fight for what you believe in and you have strength. Yeah. The it's number great. of people who said, like, I wouldn't have had a re- – over and over, this was a huge theme. I wouldn't have had a relationship with my father if it wasn't for Star Wars because that was the only thing we knew how to talk to each other about. Yeah. And I was like – you know, and it felt amazing. Like, that was kind of what, what closed the door for me on going back to an advertising or marketing job. Right. Is that I realized – fun as advertising was and much as it was always an interesting strategic challenge, I didn't want to go back to putting my energy into – creating changes that were only valuable to the person I was working for, which is to say, you know, I worked on candy brands for a while uh, on Facebook and helping them get more followers. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, no one in the world benefits from, you know, a chocolate bar having an extra 5 million followers, except the brand and marketing managers of that chocolate bar company. It's (laughs) not, the world's not more fun for anybody. Nobody's happier at the end of the day. And once I worked on something like Star Wars, where I realized that there are fans and they that it was lives. meaningful to people, yeah. that people right. were grateful for the time and energy that other people were spending building this thing that was so meaningful to them, I kind of that reminded me that I had wanted to be in entertainment originally, and I think that was why was because you know I knew as a fan what it was like to care deeply about a story sure. someone had told sure. and, and use it to define the world around you. So, what was going on at <coughs> Lucasfilm in terms of uh, the Star Wars films when you joined? What, so when I got they? there. The general understanding was that there weren't going to be any more Star Wars films. So, the, so one, two, and three had been released. One, two, and three had been released. Okay, uh, you know, five, six years, no, ten years earlier or something. I mean, I was in high school when when Episode One came out. When Jar Jar Binks hit the big that screen. My, yeah, that was my okay. senior year of high school. Got it. Yeah, uh, I remember skipping school to like go get disillusioned in a movie theater. Well, well um, what was the? Well, I mean, what's the like? What's the I mean, scuttlebutt about Jar Jar over at Lucasfilm? <laughs> no, there's talk about there's no scuttlebutt. Everybody knows that he was a mistake. Um, Even George. George refuses to say that he was a bad idea, but he knows everyone else hates him. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of my favorite things in there, you know, you, you walk the halls of Lucasfilm, and there's all this amazing memorabilia. Yeah. Uh, and one of the great things is the original Han in Carbonite yeah. sculpture is actually sure. on a wall somewhere. Yeah. And right next to it is a uh, gift that fans sent to the company of Jar Jar in Carbonite. Right. Awesome. <laughs> right. And I think next to that on the wall, like a Xerox of a, a news article showing that he was voted maybe the most annoying film character of all time. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So the company, you know, no one pretends that it was a great decision. Yeah. Uh, George stands by his reasons, I think, for, for having put him in there in the first place, but he doesn't pretend that people responded the way he wanted them to. Right. Sure. Right. So, um, and so there was no uh, uh, idea of doing these new movies, J.J. Abrams. No, movies, at that, at that, that, that point, point the, uh, the main new content was the TV series, yeah, yeah, The right. Clone Wars. Clone uh, Wars, yeah. And... You know, George had specifically vowed he was not going to go back and make movies, in part, I think, because he was so burnt by the reception to episodes one through three. Sure. You know, he, whether you like them or not, it's hard to deny that he's had a weird life even, you know, all of the money he's made doesn't change the fact that how do you live a normal life when 
for 30 or 40 years, you've been walking around in a world where, you know, two thirds of the people you interact with can quote from memory yeah. something that you made up. You oh, God. Sure. I mean, it's your wor- the in world some ways, you created. another version of L. Ron Hubbard. You, know, you can only make people unhappy. And actually, I mean, you, you guys have probably heard this. One of my favorite other things that I learned at Lucasfilm was that for several years running, and it's probably still the case, in the UK on their census annually, where you can write in uh, a religion that you are if you, you know, if the one that you want isn't there. Yeah. Jedi has always ranked in the top 10. That's awesome. Most <laughs> common religions in the UK. Awesome. And I'm like, you know, and how do you, how do you, how do you live with that? No matter how much money you've made. Yeah. yeah. You can only disappoint people really. Right. Sure. Well, um, even, even, and you know, uh, it's funny because once one, two and three came out, this little part of that lore had been wiped out. But when uh, return of the Jedi came out or revenge of the Jedi, it was originally called mm-hmm. when that movie came out, people didn't like the Ewoks. I know. And they really hated them. It took some time for people's memories to revise that for them and be like, oh, no, I loved the Ewoks at the time. <laughs> yeah, and, but it really and yet that never happened with Jar Jar. We're, we're that far past Jar Jar now, and nobody's yeah, like, well, oh, well, you know Jar what? Jar, that was a good decision. Yeah. No, Jar Jar was the one who, who freed the Ewoks from right, prison. You're right. Actually, he became the new punching bag. <laughs> yeah. Well, because then people were like, you know, Return of the Jedi is actually a great movie, and like the, you know, the chase through the forest. At least it wasn't all great. talking in a Senate. Yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> at the right. time, people were like, I hate these fucking Ewoks. Yeah, they of course. They they, yeah, they were like, what are these fucking teddy bears doing in the middle yeah. of this otherwise awesome story? Yeah. Uh, and so from a digital point of view, you, your job was to try to uh, make things like the, the projects like Clone Wars that permeate outside of the TV into other wor- worlds? I mean, I was, told, I was told in part that what they liked about my background was my interest in transmedia cross-platform story right. design. So the idea was, could we use digital to stitch together and make more meaningful connections between all these different pieces that were kind of floating out there by themselves? Right. And also, the digital is the main channel where fans connect both with the company and with each other. So what were we doing to better kind of position the sure. company to meaningfully interact with people rather than just push marketing. And it seemed like there's a lot of upside because that crowd out there, that Star Wars fan base, probably lends itself very well to digital fandom. It can. It also lends itself to digital trolling. I mean, here's the funny thing yeah. about Star Wars is, you know, if you're a Harry Potter fan, yeah. you unambiguously appreciate J.K. Rowling. Like, there are not, there's not a segment of Harry Potter fandom that's like, fuck J.K. Rowling, that bitch, she ruined Harry Potter. Right. (laughs) Whereas the people who love Star Wars the most are very likely the people who hate George Lucas the most. And so it's this weird relationship you have with fans. You know, you were talking about how uh, fans like turned on each other before Lizard Palooza, you know, in the the Club Dread message board. You should see Star Wars fans go at each other. I mean, the people who are apologists for the original movies and say, no, you guys... You have to take the vision as a whole, like he knew what he was doing, and it's a really important part that shares contrast. And other people are like, fuck you, lapdog. You don't know what you're talking about. Like, yeah. stop apologizing for a bullshit movie. <laughs> and then other people come in and they're like, you guys, we're all fans of the same thing. Let's stop fighting about this. And other people are like, fuck you, don't interrupt. <laughs> yeah. So, it, I mean, it just it turns into <laughs> a, a lovable cesspool, but a total cesspool. And were you the uh, the warden of that cesspool? Oh, no, no, no. no. Uh, I, I mean, one of the things actually long-term that didn't, didn't work for me about the job that I had at Lucasfilm is... Uh, that I wasn't spending much time actually getting to do the hands-on work of like interacting with people. You know, there were social media yeah. people and I hired you know someone else to, to do social media management and I hired a copywriter and they got to do the day-to-day and I was in, it was the first job I had ever had where I spent most of my time in meetings talking about what other people should do, right. which was incredibly unsatisfying to me. Yeah. So I, you know, I knew that the longevity wasn't going to be there. Um, which actually brings us around to maybe your original question, which is how did I stumble into this the crowdfunding world? world. Yeah, which which I still and I'll, I'll say this back, on the record, back like I still I I hate like cringe down to the the core of my being at the notion of being a crowdfunding guru, right? Or a crowdfunding expert. But why? I mean, why? I'll tell you why. For the same reason that I think it would be a mistake to walk into a and I'm not 
trying to say anything about my level of, of talent or relative yeah. like, expertise. But you wouldn't walk into a restaurant where someone had spent their entire life training to become a cook and say, oh, man, that guy is a spice guru. Right. Like spices are part of what they use to get to a specific end or it's part of what they understand about how the whole thing works. I guess But it's so. not in any way the point of what they're doing. And, and, I know that, but that's just I mean, one, it's one facet of your world. But <clears throat> I mean, used, you've yeah, conquered you that needed, facet. And, and if people came to the restaurant saying... I've got a real spice problem. Can you help me? Then, yeah, of course, they'd right. be like, this guy gets spices. He solved <laughs> right. my problem. Right. But to me, well, you can say he's a great chef like, and also <clears throat> a bit of a spice guru. And also, <laughs> also a bit of a spice <laughs> guru. But, right. but you, that would be the also, not the primary. I mean, to me, you know, the thing about, about crowdfunding, and we still will circle back in a second to the actual answer to your question, yes, but yes, like, yes. the thing about crowdfunding is that I think most people who fuck it up or most people who do it and do it poorly do it because they think that it's primarily a source of money. Right, and I think the money is. I know it's. It doesn't look like this, you know, on projects like Super Troopers, where we bring in, you know, four and a half million dollars. But the money is is the byproduct of what's happening. Like, yeah. people assume the funding is the important part of crowdfunding when actually it's the crowd that's the important. That's part a of great. That's a great way to look at it. I mean, I, and I think that's true for Super Troopers, and yeah. I think that's true. I mean, it's clear that that's why you. I mean, that's love how I approach it. it. Like, I don't think you can go after it and say what this is about is we need your money. Yeah, it's. We want something that we think you also want. We believe in this. What's standing right. between us and this thing that you and we all care about is money that we've tried to get every other way that we can and we can't. Right. But we still want to make this happen, and we think you want this to happen also. And that's great. So if we all yeah. share that same want, and we can all chip in $5 to get there, then let's let us come together. what we want to do. Well, that's but, the great money, thing about but the money follows from the passion. The passion doesn't follow yeah, from but, the money. Yeah, you, which you, is, you're right. People are forgetting about that. Because I, I think... The beauty of the Super Troopers campaign was the realization of that. Was I'll that tell you this. I got, I got approached for, and this drives me nuts, like I got approached for a, a project that had the potential to be of similar scale mm-hmm. to, to Super Troopers. That will not be named. That will not be named shortly after we finished. Yeah. Um, and there was another project I was potentially going to jump onto uh, to help them because I thought it was really worthwhile. But in a conversation with the, the producers who were in charge of that project, they said, we don't really want a community. We just want money. What do you think is the minimum number of times we could interact with our contributors before they would want their money back? Like, hmm. we, we want to know how little we can get away with having community. Right. right. And I was like, I mean, that would be like asking. I apparently really like restaurant metaphors, but I was like, that would be like <laughs> asking how many bites you have to have in a meal before it's satisfying. That's just not sure. really how it works. It's not a logical right. question. Um, and I ended up jumping, not because I didn't think they could potentially make the money that they needed, but because I didn't know how to help them. Like, I, I don't know how to be part of something that is about money and not about bringing people together because they all want the same thing. You also have an empirical knowledge of of what goes into these things. I mean, you know, it's like I I know that you have interviewed with several filmmakers who didn't want to participate or didn't, you know. And I've I've advised a lot of filmmakers against it, too. Sure. But, you know, it's like, I mean, you worked with us. And, uh, I mean, you know, there's five of us. And we put in a great deal of, of work. And You guys did a shit ton of work. Yeah, but it's like there was... I mean, the thing that I was uh, most surprised about was the fact that how grueling it was. Yeah. Like, it was it's an exhausting, exhaustive process. But and, and, that and people who think that. that it's an easy way to make money, and that's what some people think, is they're like, yeah. oh, well, I don't want to kowtow to an investor. I don't want to ask a studio and then have to take notes from them. This is, like, totally free. It's just free money, and I'll get it, and then I can do what I want. The fans will just, like, take whatever I give them. Right. It is the hardest you will ever work for money, in my opinion. Well, and by it the is. way, and yeah. by the way, like, you know, we were fully invested in it. And yeah. we, you know, it's like... We did come up with a, a great campaign with the Let Favre Out of the Trunk thing, which was yeah, you know, which was awesome. Something for daily daily content for for people. So we were on board, as opposed to asking, you know, how what right. What's well, the they, least you guys didn't come to it. Do. I mean, the, one of the reasons I was 
I was open to and then excited to work with you guys because you didn't approach it as a work for hire where you were like, go make us some money. You guys, I think the way you put it to me the first time we all met was we all want this to happen. We all know that we're doing it because our fans have been asking for it and we want to do it just as much as they do. But we don't understand this space and we have no idea like what steps we need to go through, what the pitfalls exactly. are. Yeah. So we need you to point us in the right direction and tell us when we're about to do something wrong or tell us when there's something we're forgetting to do. Yeah. And that was what I was. Like I don't see myself as the one who did the work of the campaign. I see myself as the one who like guided you guys through the work you had to do. You are a campaign director. Yeah. Uh, uh, like but, a cruise director. Yeah. But I think you're right, though. The, th- the thing that motivated us, even when you know the things got grueling or annoying or we had fights, whatever it was, the passion came from the fact that there was such an outpouring from the fans. Yeah. And, it's, and the fa- passion it's was that some dude sold his fucking truck so he could put money in to make this movie made. You totally. know what I mean? And that's the stuff that you're like, that's why we do it. I mean, right. for, for we, me, like we, that. Wanted to, we wanted to do it, and yet we were still, you know, <clears throat> cunty several times a day. And now <laughs> well, when you get three or four hours of sleep a night for a month, everybody gets a little yeah, bit cunty. Remember I was sick the entire time. I don't know if you I you actually you had a running time. cold. That's absolutely yeah, true. But like, so now you're interviewing <laughs> with some filmmakers who are like, what's the least amount of work I have to do? And you're thinking, if these people don't want to right. do anything, this campaign is going to be a Well, it's not only that. Like, the, the way I now explain it to people is, you know, yes, insofar as I'm, I'm like available for hire or available to work on stuff, you know, I'm, I'm there to do work for you. But what I tell people now is that, you know, like in the case of Super Troopers, you guys were my my first clients. Yeah. But I think of the entire Super Troopers fan base as my second client. Yeah. And I feel like if I get you don't what you want at the expense of what they want, yeah. like if I don't make them happy also, I don't consider the project successful and it's one that I wouldn't even take on like unless I felt that I was in a position to to help both groups get what they want. Because to me what's interesting about this entire space is that unlike, you know, traditional capitalism or commerce or whatever where it's we finished this thing now we're going to sell it to you you can take it or leave it yeah i like that there is room for the audience or the person who cares or the fan or whatever at the beginning of the process while there's still a chance for them to have any kind of material difference where they they aren't just the end state the bucket that it gets dumped into they are the reason it happened in the first place yeah but for that to work it needs to be about everybody's agenda it can't be this you know i think vanity projects are often the first ones to crash and burn on these sites because it's Actually, I don't know if you guys saw. Do you know who Yuva Bull is? Yeah, he had. Did he you had see the video? Yeah. Who is it? Did you watch the I, video? I, I haven't watched. I saw clips it of the video. Is astonishing. What is it? This director who's made some truly like abysmal. He's movies a, cra- like a crazy movies. German. Okay. Director. He's crazy, and he uh, has tried. He's now done three crowdfunding campaigns, and they've all failed to hit their number. Yeah. Uh, and the most recent one was a couple days ago for this movie called Rampage Three. Okay. And he went off on this like four minute. To- like. It went viral. Expl- expletive laden, I think is the yeah. word the press would use. Yeah. Video where he was like, fuck Kickstarter, fuck all of you for not giving me the money, fuck all of you, you don't deserve this movie, I have enough money to play golf for the rest of my life until I die, and now you're never going to get this movie. Crowdfunding is bullshit. Nobody in Hollywood cares about you. They're all laughing at you. And I was like, oh man, wow. But, but that's the, the thing. The like, spurned. <clears throat> that is one of two ways of seeing it. I think a lot of... Mm-hmm. But, but he's... The amazing thing to me watching that video is that he doesn't, like, he's saying, you know, this is a joke. Crowdfunding is not a way to get films made. But he's ignoring the fact that it has been a way to get films made. And what he's ignoring most is that it didn't work because he went in there saying, this is what I want, give it to me. Right. Whereas crowdfunding projects that are worth actually getting involved in are ones that say, this is what you want, we know how to get it for you. Yeah, it's the crowd. Sure. But that's, you know, it's also, when we first met, uh, that was something, even though we were not ever planning on being like, hey, give us money to make this movie. like. Those are things that you just need to educate people on sometimes. Of course. And, you know, we happen to be willing 
No, I mean, you guys were eager to know what you didn't know, which is a good first step. Yeah. And did you know that stuff? Okay, like when Ver- the, the Veronica Mars people, Rob Thomas, right? It was Rob Thomas? Mm-hmm. Did he come to you or did you go to him? No, so it's funny. Um, so Veronica Mars is an interesting one, and it's kind of the last, I guess, chapter or whatever of, of the story of how I ended up where I am, which is that I was at Lucasfilm. Yeah. I, you know, I knew that I was interested in moving on, doubly so, because Disney had just acquired the company which meant that over the next two years there was going to be a folding together of divisions that already existed that had the exact same function as mine right and if i you know on the one hand when you hear that there are going to be more movies that are going to be exciting and jj abrams is going to work on them how do you not want to be part of that sure on the other hand i had come out for what sounded like a dream job and i had learned what it's like to be in a company where you know everyone's protecting what is rather than gearing towards what could be mm-hmm. um and so i kind of figured maybe i'll come back to lucasfilm in the future when the dust is settled but right now it's probably going to be a stressful place at least for me to be yeah um and i learned that i didn't like being in meetings instead of actually hands-on with stuff <laughs> right, right. so uh the timing worked out amazingly because i got this call from someone who knew that i had worked on the set of veronica mars and knew there was kind of this so the other piece of this is in 2005 um one of the first articles i wrote after that one about the matrix and the yeah. the cross platform stuff was uh, when the iTunes store started selling TV shows for the first time instead of just music. Right. And everybody again, like I only seem to write articles when I think everyone's missing something really obvious and I feel the need to like point it out before the conversation runs too far. Yeah. Um, and so this time what everyone was saying is, Oh my God, it's revolutionary. You can watch TV on your iPod. There wasn't even an iPhone at that point. It was the iPod, yeah. which had like literally a postage stamp size screen, which didn't feel revolutionary to me. Right. Um, and what I found way more interesting when that happened was that they had introduced this thing called the season pass, which everybody's totally familiar with now. But at the time, what struck me is they were saying, Hey, if you know, you're going to watch this show all season long anyway, why don't you just go ahead and pay us for it in advance without having seen it yet? And we'll give you each episode as it comes out. And once I saw that, you know, remember that I'm spending all of my time in graduate school at that point, looking at the things fans do to try and keep the things they love alive, you know, petitioning networks and sending them symbolic objects of protest and organizing campaigns and letter writing missions and all this stuff. And I, I looked at iTunes and I was like, this seems like the most obvious thing in the world for the first time ever. We're saying pay us for TV before you even see it. So instead of doing that for a show that we've already decided is getting made, what if we said, okay, shows like Arrested Development, Firefly, Veronica Mars, these things that aren't succeeding with the traditional TV model right. because they are only ever going to have deeply passionate small audiences instead of huge audiences that are indifferent but willing to watch an advertisement. What if those fans could say, yeah, I care enough about this that I'll give you the money in advance to watch the season and keep it in production and I'll only give you money if enough of us are willing to do it to keep the show yeah. going. And I so I wrote this article for Slate pitching that iTunes could be the beginning of like an infrastructure for fans being allowed to keep alive shows that they don't want to see get canceled. Um, and I talked with a couple people from networks and studios at the time and they were like, I mean, it was, I've never had more meetings where people looked at me like I was brain damaged and unaware of it. <laughs> yeah. They were like, Oh, you really don't get how economics work. Do mm. you? Uh, sorry. Um, but, but the long and short of it was that everybody said this is never going to happen. Like it's a really right. nice pipe dream and it's cool that you think fans are important, but that's not what's going to happen. Was Kickstarter around at this time? No, no, this okay. was like eight or nine years before Kickstarter okay. came out of the scene. Um, and there wasn't anything like that. So, and iTunes had no interest in putting its money behind helping fans resurrect shows that were dying. Yeah. So I was like, okay. So I went and, you know, got my job at big spaceship and went along my career in the other direction. And then I got okay, gotcha. a, you know, and I watched Kickstarter as it started to emerge and thought about the fact that it seemed like, Oh wait, this is like an economic platform for letting people disrupt the market when it's ignoring them and getting stuff that's being denied to them through the traditional channels. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> Veronica Mars was long dead at that point, And I was no longer like trying to figure out what TV shows were on the cusp of being canceled. So I didn't think that much about it. 
And then as I was getting ready to move on from Lucasfilm, I got a call from someone uh, at an agency that had been approached by Warner Brothers to help launch a crowdfunding campaign on Kickstarter to make a Veronica Mars movie if there was enough interest from fans. Yeah. And Wait, Warner Brothers was driving that. So Warner Brothers was engaging, was looking to engage an agency. Basically, what had happened is yeah. Rob Thomas and Kristen Bell had spent like a years negotiating, trying to find a way to bring it back. Mm-hmm. And finally, Rob had heard of Kickstarter from a musician friend of his who had made an album that way. And he was like, "Okay, well, fans are still asking every time I go out in public when this movie is going to get made, and I still don't have the support from the studio, who are convinced there's not a big enough audience to make this a good investment." Yeah. So maybe we just like put it to an acid test once and for all. And so he had negotiated with them for permission to run a crowdfunding campaign where if he could get at least $2 million, they right. would handle distribution and marketing and you know, probably would supplement the budget a little bit if needed. But, but that's the amazing more. thing about the crowdfunding. The other component of it is that they're able to prove that there is a fan base. It's not just a raising well, of the money. That's the it's interesting the thing, appetite. Right? Like it's, it's a, the gesture in a lot of ways matters yeah. more than the actual money raised. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you know, so he had permission. Uh, and what my friend said is, you know, they're they're looking for an agency to help like manage the social media or you know help like market the campaign so that it has a chance of succeeding. Right. And we know your background with Veronica Mars, and we know that you basically pitched this idea like eight years <laughs> right. ago. Do you want to? If we're going to bid on this, do you want to work on this with us? Right. And I was like, yeah, I would. I would do that. Um, do you have to wrap your mind around that. Like what? Like. I mean, you'd never done that before. No, but I mean, and that's the thing. I had supported crowdfunding projects at that point, so I had my own ideas about what I thought how know, it would work. Yeah. From a receiving end. I knew that on most projects I had given money to, I liked the idea or I liked kind of the rhetoric of what they were about. But I also knew that as soon as they got my money and got started on their project, I never heard from them again. And then maybe a year and a half after I was supposed to get the thing that I had been promised, I'd get like one email being like, hey, sorry, we ran behind schedule. Here's your thing. Thanks again. Yeah. Which was a totally unsatisfying experience. And especially, you know, it's one thing if that's for like a watch uh, where I have no emotional connection per se. But if it's if I were to invest in something that I loved already, like a TV show that I wanted to bring back and were to help bring it back. And then that was the relationship I had with it. Yeah. I would think that would be like the end of my emotional commitment to that show. I'd be like, wow, I saved it from the dead and it still didn't care enough to like bother with me except <laughs> when it needed something from right, it. Right. Right. So, you know, for me, what I kind of figured was, you know, they, I think we're all worried about if they were even going to be able to make $2 million in 30 days. And I was like, no, they're going to make $2 million in the first 48 hours, no matter what happens. Like mm-hmm. basically, Why, how I, did you know that? Um, he went to MIT, bro. <laughs> yeah. Here's the because I'm a mathematician, dog. I know, but, but Veronica Mars, I mean, we talked about it. It wasn't a, like a, a wildly no. popular or successful television show. So what is the data in your mind that gets it to $5.7 million or whatever it is? It's, I mean, it's partly that fans had never stopped asking. It's that it had always been like a critical darling in the yeah. press, like the press and TV journalists always loved it. And it's that the people who did care about it and they kind of come out of the woodworks and like a lot of other shows it found afterlife on DVD. So I think it has more fans. But don't you think that it had to be uh, beyond the fan base? I don't think it did go much beyond the fan you base. Thought, you thought the raise came was, from the, the people who were avid fans. I think largely. And I, you know, yeah. and I think the, do you think the biggest thing is they had been asking for a chance to do something for so long yeah. and had been told, no, we don't want you to do anything. You don't get to do anything. Right. That in some ways it wasn't just about getting the movie. It was that the barrier to making, a difference was finally removed. I mean, one of my favorite stories that I tell people from kind of behind the scenes of Veronica Mars is that we got a number of contributions during the campaign from people who would write in and say things like, Hey, I just want you to know, I just gave a hundred bucks and I actually never watched Veronica Mars. And I think Veronica Mars sounds kind of stupid and I don't really want to see the movie when you're done with it. Uh, (laughs) so don't bother. But 
this is the first time that I've ever seen the studios make a conscious effort to listen to fans when they say they want something. Mm. And my hope is that if we help you set, if I help you right now set a precedent of what you get when you listen to fans, that six months from now, a year from now, I'll be given the chance to bring back the thing I do want back. Huh. So I'm giving you a hundred bucks to make a gesture that the studios need to fucking listen to us for a change. And will those people tell you right what there. they want back in, in the some, hopes that... Some, I've, I've, had, I've, had other, I've had groups of fans, especially after Veronica Mars, contact me without the, you know, the consent of a showrunner or the caster or whatever and be like, we want to bring back this show with or without the cast and the creator. And I'm like, mm, <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, not, that's not how it works, though. Yeah. No, but I, you know, something, the thing I found the most fascinating about, about these campaigns was... It was these things. It wasn't the money raise. It was one, you know, the fact that it's a display of, you know, uh, to the entity that distributes that there are people out there who want to watch it. But like, more so, it was this thing. It was like, it was like the club mentality. Like, I wonder if you know, if the day after Veronica Mars had been canceled, if you tried to start this Kickstarter campaign, if you would have gotten as much, uh, as many contributions as you did. After all this time. No, it helps that it was a slow boil. I mean, a few things happened. One is that the show ended on a cliffhanger, which was super useful for them because it left an itch unscratched for seven or eight years for people who just yeah. really wanted some closure. Right. Another is that, like a lot of cult shows, it had an afterlife on DVD as people passed it around to all of their friends and people came late to the party and they were like, oh, shit, this show got canceled before I ever had a chance to even like watch it on TV. That's a bummer. So I think the audience, yeah, was substantially bigger. The potential audience was substantially bigger by the time this came back than it would have been then. So then if the audience is there, then your hurdle, your trick is to get the word out that this campaign exists, right? It's it's awareness, and it's also, I would say convincing, but I don't think it's convincing. I think it's helping people realize and and accept uh that they really do make the difference that it yeah. wasn't going to happen if they wanted to sit back and wait and say, oh, well, I'll just see it when it comes out. Like, there really wouldn't have been a movie or really wouldn't have had the same budget. And I guess, you know, I, I think arguably this is naive on my part, but I I believe the rhetoric that I, like, go after and I believe that why this works is because it does let people feel like they're making a difference right? because they are actually making a difference. They are getting things the studios refuse to make. Well, they are right. making Make people believe well, it that it's important. Like that's why that those first 48 hours... Uh, I mean, to me, that's probably so big. Yeah, yeah, because people do; they can see that that number is climbing, and it. You know, I found it to be actually quite exciting. It is the first forty-eight hours are always yeah. insane. I mean, my favorite example of this, I think, is still reading Rainbow. You yeah, know, you, were, you were saying that like it's not just the money; it's also seeing that there are people who the care support, in a way yeah. that you've never really like. They've never had a chance to express, and you've never had a chance to realize. With reading Rainbow, that was especially profound for me because you've got this guy, Levar Burton, who's yeah. been you know he he devoted. 20, 30 years of his life to working on this and not even because it made him a lot of money but because he believed in what it did for kids. Right. And so when we were working on that campaign, it was a million dollar was the minimum target raise and we hit that in about 10 hours and there's a video that went around the internet of him as we crossed the ten, uh, the million dollar mark like yeah. crying. And, right. You know, not because he was an actor and could turn it on because what I found amazing about that was never in his life had there been a single moment where everybody who had been touched by the work that he spent all of his energy doing could do anything to show that back to him. They could write fan letters and stuff, but that's a pretty sure. diluted impact over time. And in one day, you know, 60,000 people or whatever stood up and said, yeah, I want to give back to you. You've made a difference, and I want to help you make more of a difference. Right. It was like the most genuine crying I had ever seen, and it was amazing because most people don't get that chance to realize yeah, that I mean, their work you, is meaningful to people. Literally, you see the passion that the yeah. fans have for the thing that you do. Totally. And I'll say you this, know? I mean, on Veron- it's very humbling. One of my favorite things on Veronica Mars, and I'm hoping that we get kind of to do the same thing on Super Troopers, is that, you know, I, I've worked in marketing and I like, get what marketing departments are about and I understand their function and I totally get that you're never going to reach fans if you don't have like a traditional marketing 
campaign to spread awareness of something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But marketing also ends up kind of running interference in a relationship between creators and fans a lot of the time. You know, fans are like pawned off on the marketers and it's like, those are your super fans. Like, make sure you have extra content for them. And that's like a pretty, I think, shitty reductive way to treat people who are emotionally invested is to mm-hmm. say like, okay, make sure that we milk them the hardest to like figure out how they're going to like drive, you know, ticket sales. Right. Um, with Veronica Mars, one of the really exciting things to me was that because we had started as a crowdfunding thing and said, we're going to go straight to fans and let them decide how much of a thing this is going to be. We sort of committed early on that that had, you know, Rob Thomas to his credit, like this was super important. I mean, it's the reason I ended up staying on that project as a associate producer, where basically what I did is executive produce the relationship that the cast and crew and he had mm. with their 92,000 supporters for the next year until the right. movie came out. Right. Because the shittiest thing I could imagine would be to say, we care so much about you. We're doing this for you. you know, we, we, but we need the money to get this made. And then when you have the money, say, great, we're going to go do this the traditional way and we'll come back to you when it's done and then you'll get the movie that you wanted and we've met our end of the bargain. Right. I felt like if, you know, and he, he even more so felt like if we were going to start by saying fans needed to help make it happen, then we should be looking for ways to keep fans just as involved through the entire process, whether yeah. that's letting them know what was happening on set where there was room for it, letting them weigh in on choices that like, you know, wouldn't change the artistic vision of the, the movie, that sort of thing. And, and it reestablishes that relationship. So like one of the things that was exciting that I don't think most of the cast of Veronica Mars had ever really experienced before, you know, they'd gone to Comic-Con and like seen people get excited in panels. Yeah. But when you're on set normally, like I remember the first time I went on the Veronica Mars set as a grad student, I had come from the day before seeing them do a panel at Comic-Con in like a packed hall full of people who, you know, it was like watching Beatlemania. Like, there were people sure, who wanted crazy, to take their shirts off and throw it at the yeah, stage. Yeah. Right. And I knew how much it meant to them, and I saw people cry because they were in the same room as these cast members. And then the next day, you're, you know, they're back at work, and it's like, it is work for them. And as, you know, I'm sure it is for you guys when you've made movies most of the time. And I was talking to people who were doing lighting and, you know, set deck and stuff like that. And I was like, does it feel, you know, does it ever feel like an honor to, like, be here working on something that means so much to so many people? <laughs> and they were like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, like, yeah. this is a job. job. I'm move on to the next job. Mostly yeah. what I need is a paycheck so I can, like, eat this month. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, you go into meal penalty time. They're like, <laughs> all right. It didn't, you know, it didn't, it <laughs> yeah. didn't, there was no sense of, they were completely oblivious to what their own work meant to anybody. Yeah. And what was amazing on the Veronica Mars movie is we tried to not just build a, a megaphone where the cast could talk to the audience, we tried to find a way to channel whatever the audience wanted to say back into the experience of making the movie. So whether that was that, you know, we had 90 some extras who spent time on set and had lunch with the cast and then appeared as kind of background extras in a really key scene or that we, you know, we'd take, we got letters from people in the, you know, or among our backers who would say, hey, I know how hard everybody's working on this movie and then you have a compressed accelerated time frame. Is there an address where we can send baked goods for the crew to like <laughs> let them know yeah. how much we appreciate the hours they're yeah. working? And we'd print out all of these messages and we'd put them, you know, I'd, I'd hand sheets of them to people on crew because people would write in and say, hey, I bet no one thinks of your electrician and like gaffer team. Tell them right. that they're fucking awesome for like doing this probably <laughs> for like, no money. Yeah. Right. And we'd pass that stuff around and the cast especially said numerous times, they're like, this totally transforms the experience of working on a movie because normally you have no sense in real time of what the work means to anybody and it's just a job. Yeah. But when you're sitting there doing a scene in front of people for whom this is like the one of the best days of their life yeah. that they're there with you. <laughs> you actually try. It's inspiring. Well, yeah, it's, it's inspiring. Sure. It's energizing and it makes you feel like, oh shit, this work matters to somebody. Like I have a responsibility for more than just getting it yeah. done. Not fucking around. Which is I mean, awesome. Do you think then that, I mean, not to suck your dick a little bit here, but let's do yeah, it. Everybody <laughs> likes to get their dick sucked. Suck I mean, do you think that's what you brought to the table? In the sense like, Veronica Mars is revolutionary. It's revolutionary in the sense that no one had done it on that scope uh, before, uh, to that level before. And it changed people's minds and how you could fund a movie 
What was different about it? Like, is that is that what you brought? Think, this idea of loving the fan more? I thought, well, it's interesting because we had collected the money up front rather than at the back end of the process. Yeah. Like, I think it freed the project up a little bit from every decision being made having to be about how is this going to make us more money. Yeah. Like, we'd already collected some money. There was a good case to be made for using some of it to give back to the people who had gotten us there. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, I, I remember one of the... One of the compliments I'm like most fond of that I've ever gotten uh, was from a publicist who was working with Warner Bros. in that project, and she called me and she was like, "You're like some kind of fan whisperer. How do you know what they what they want to hear?" A guru. And I was like, "Well, I know what they want to hear because I don't think of them as a they. I right. like approach this like a fan, and I know what I would want to hear, and I know yeah, that species what it's there. like to yeah. They're not like some exotic you know creature that you see in a sure. zoo. Like they are people like you who love something and have had." pretty much no experience of it loving them back. And that's the mindset people were missing. Yeah, and I think right? you know, there's, it's rare for there to be someone in a production whose job is to reciprocate the audience's appreciation and to like send the channel in the other direction because what's, what's the ROI on that you know, in a traditional movie? Like You'd be like, no, we'll, we'll wait, we'll do the marketing phase. Yeah. But when you're there only because of the grace and generosity of the fans, it's much easier to get everybody on board with the idea that like, if you can have 50 people there just to like mancraft services, yeah. you can have one or two people who are there to make sure that like fans have a channel to, to be part sure, of that. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, it was, I always found something uh, fascinating when we were, we'd go in some of these marketing meetings for our films and you realize that the philosophy was that actually that it was kind of like the quote unquote, the lowly fan, you know, it was, yeah. these, it the, was these fans that like they almost were cynical about and almost pitied them for being your fans. And I remember when we were, I mean, I guess I'm going to out the studio, but like when we were doing Club Dread, like the like the movie phone thing was originally that they had pitched us was it was going to be people being like, if you want a Club Dread, uh, hit this key for this thing, and it was like they were like because that's the way stoned people talk. Is stoned people that are going to see your movie? And we were like, cool. So that's how we talk down to the people who care about right. this. Well, we that's how we patronize them. It felt incredibly insulting to the fans, and also insulting to us, frankly, because we were like, you know, our movies are smarter than you're <laughs> leading us to believe, but they're not really thinking about it. Well, it's, I mean, and this is like a common thing in marketing. It's hard not to do. Like. I think what marketing misses most of the time is any kind of empathy for the people you're marketing to. Mm-hmm. If you think you're above them or you think there's some exotic thing that can be studied and then manipulated in a specific way, they're going to feel that when you talk to them. You know, it's like when you talk to a little kid and you're like, oh, who's a big boy? Are you a big boy? And the little kid's like, fuck you. Why are you talking yeah, like about that? So, okay, so we're into, you've done, uh, you do Veronica Mars. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the first one. You set the record. You become the guru. Well, and, and, and the way that the Veronica Mars played out boring. is actually, I mean, just so that I'm not taking credit for anything I didn't actually do, they, uh, I, you asked if Rob came to me. Yeah. He didn't. I heard they were doing it. I contacted him. Yeah. And I told him that, you know, I was no longer like some uh, snot-nosed grad student kid, like getting in the way on their set, that I was now the head of digital for Lucasfilm, which is like a vaguely credible position. Sure. It's a very credible um, position. And I told him... You know, I linked him back to that article I'd written in 2005, and I was like, look, this is, I think, going to be a super important moment. I think you're going to make the number no matter what, but then the question is how much farther it's going to go and what kind of experience people are going to have. Yeah. And independent of Veronica Mars, this is like a moment that matters to me because I think either way, when this is a case study, people are either going to look at it and say, holy shit, look how wrong we were to not listen to fans, or yeah. they're going to look at it and say, yeah, we were pretty much right to not listen to fans. And I really don't want to see that go the wrong way just because some marketing agency it's that doesn't going the right understand way. the fans right. yeah. gets hired to like manage it just like any other marketing project. Mm-hmm. So I offered to leave my job at Lucasfilm and come run the campaign for them pro bono 
if needed because I didn't want money to be like a consideration in whether or not they were cool with me doing it. But they had just hired an agency to do it, and he was like, "No, you know, I appreciate the offer, but I don't think having you know two groups here to do the same thing would actually make things better. It would make things worse," which was a fairly smart assessment. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so you know maybe something else in the future, but not this. And so I was like, t- "Totally get it. I appreciate that." Um, and I stepped back, and they launched the campaign, and it did hit you know two million dollars in the first like twelve hours or something. Like I told him, it was going to. Would have done that honestly, no matter. I don't think the marketing had anything to do with it. Yeah. I think once people heard it was there, the fans did the job of spreading the word and said, holy shit, this thing we've been trying to do, they're finally going to let us do. Right. Um, but then after about a week, it started cooling down really rapidly and it went from, you know, pulling in $500,000 a day to pulling in, you know, $5,000 a day. Yeah. Uh, and at that pace, it was definitely not on target to get anywhere near what I thought it could have made and what I had told Rob in my first email that I thought it could make. And I wrote him back and I was like, hey, you know, I know from the outside, I obviously can't know what you guys are planning and maybe things are exactly where they should be or maybe there are extenuating circumstances and there's no way for me to know. But just from watching as an outsider, like there are a few things that I think if you tweaked them would make a huge difference right. uh, and aren't necessarily that difficult. And I'm not asking for you to let me be involved, but I'd love to just send you like a rundown of what, what a few of those things would be if that's okay with you. And then I promise I won't ever bother you again. <laughs> and uh, and he wrote back and he was like, yeah, I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are. And I sent him like three or four page strategic brief of you know what I felt like the top 10 things were and a couple of ways to shift in thinking about why these things do and don't work. You know, he'd said, um, and hopefully this isn't anything he would be uncomfortable with me sharing, he had said when the campaign was first about to launch that he, you know, he didn't consider himself like a very technologically sophisticated guy he didn't spend all of his time on social media and like keeping up with the newest advertising technologies or whatever so i think he kind of assumed that they needed an agency who could talk all of the jargon to make sense of it and come up with like a i think as he put it a plan for world domination with technology yeah and one of the big things that i told him when i wrote back to him like that next day was that i don't think the success of something like this has anything to do with technology i think it has entirely to do with psychology and human motivation and crowd motivation and why people love things and if you just understand and respect that they're not crazy for loving something and that there are certain things you want back when you love something that he should be able to look at any idea that i or anyone else recommended to him and say yeah that does feel right like that feels like the right way to treat fans and he got that and completely agreed and he the recommendations all sounded right to him so he basically said like do you want to come take over the campaign and at that point, I started working with him on kind of a daily basis to figure out everything from what should he talk about in backer updates based on what I was, you know, what everybody was saying in the messages, which he was following himself. But it was it was tricky because, you know, what he needed to be doing at that point, since the movie had already been greenlit with a $2 million minimum, right. he needed to actually get a script written because it had to go into production like two months later. Right. He couldn't think about that other stuff. Yeah. And he was realizing very quickly that running a crowdfunding campaign was like a 28-hour-a-day job. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. So we started kind of splitting the difference, and I would monitor stuff and, like, aggregate the most important things and send it to him, and I would give him suggestions on like how to change rewards around and then he would tweak it however you know he thought he needed to to make it feel appropriate right for him and then it would go out to, to warner brothers and the kickstarter and the changes would get made so right um and it it sped back up a few days after i got involved and it ended it you know instead of like 3.5 or 4 which is where it was starting to look like it was going to go we got it up to up to the 5.7, 5.7 which is good because i think five especially was kind of the threshold at which 
they started having the money to really make the version of the movie that he had in mind. Yeah. So. And when you finished that campaign, though, was it the kind of thing that's like, I'm going to keep doing this, or do people come No, to I you? actually, as I do after every crowdfunding campaign, uh, I said, quit, I, said I am never doing this again in my entire life. Like, I've never... Was that one as grueling as ours? Yeah, probably more so. Okay. Yeah. Um, because that was my first one, and I didn't know what to expect, just like you didn't know what to expect. So for me, that was like yeah. about as grueling as it got. Um, but, uh, you know, I stayed on post crowdfunding campaign like the more interesting part of that project to me was and i had done that pro bono because i just wanted to get it right but i think they were like wow you added a lot of value and you know you definitely get how fans should be talked to and how to interact with them uh and it's a full-time job to do that and as and rob's kind of thinking was that as the director and uh writer of the movie he couldn't devote 100 percent of his time to doing that so he's like do you want to kind of work on this and we can find a way to like finally pay you because you've been doing some work but you can be on the crew of the movie and like on the producing team and work on it that way yeah, so yeah. that was how i ended up making that jump and then when that was over uh i contemplated a bunch of different stuff um, now can i, and I can yeah. ask in terms of i mean i think what people don't realize is you know in terms of these crowdfunding campaigns you know they the period where you can contribute lasts whatever it is a month five mm-hmm. weeks uh, for you, for someone like you, it's going to go on for it's like a twelve well to eighteen month project. Yeah. yeah, totally. I mean, Super Troopers too. You know, my the work that I'm doing with you guys on it probably won't be done until let's say you know that the movie comes out say next June or mm-hmm. July, and DVD release has to trail what at least two three months behind that. Yeah, we're probably looking at you know this started we started work on this in January of 2015, mm-hmm. and it probably won't we won't be done getting the last rewards out to people until October or November of 2016. So that's, yeah, right. you know, almost a two year in your project. lap. That's in your yeah. lap. Yeah. <laughs> and so was that the same amount? Of, so what was the, the span of the so Veronica? Mars Veronica Mars. Um, I would say I was in, yeah, it was about the same. I mean, okay. we, we, the movie actually debuted in, it had its premiere just about a year to the day after the crowdfunding campaign started. Yeah. Cause it had to shoot over that summer because most of the cast had TV show obligations in the fall. So they could only shoot if we got it done in the summer. Um, so it came out about a year later and then I was involved until the last of the posters and the DVDs and stuff had been shipped kind of overseeing or working with the customer support team at Warner brothers to make sure that we were still treating fans like fans and supporters and not like angry consumers who didn't deserve to be listened sure. to. Sure. So, and did you find that it was, uh, you know, obviously in our case there would be resistance from time to time only, I mean, mostly when people got exhausted. Sure. Was that what it was like on that first one, too? Of course. So it was your first taste into the, the brutality of, <laughs> of that kind Well, of you know, because the trick is, like, what makes it especially brutal is it's not like no one has anything to do. Once you get the money in hand, what, you know, in, in our case, what the five of you need to be focused on now is actually doing all the work of making a movie, which is not a yeah. small project itself. Yeah. What you don't need is to be responsible for simultaneously figuring out how to get 75,000 t-shirts made and shipped to, you know, every corner of the globe and how to coordinate the signing of you know six thousand seven thousand posters by all of you and how to line up theaters where we can do premieres or venues where we can have beer fest tournaments or any of that stuff and you know that's a common thing that happens in crowdfunding is people often if they succeed they then are stuck at this difficult crossroads where they can either focus on fulfilling all the promises that they made and not get around to doing the project or they can get the movie made or the project done and ignore most of the promises and really, I mean, in some ways, especially on the scale, you know, of, of like four and a half million dollars for Super Troopers too, the only way to do it is to bring in more people so that you can actually prioritize doing both of those things at the same time. Yeah. Okay, so then back to Kevin's <coughs> yeah, question. Yeah. So what happens? 
So at that point, um, you know, I, I was moving on to some other consulting stuff. I was doing some consulting for studios again to see if there was a way to apply some of what had happened, you know, in Veronica Mars to like bigger tentpole franchise releases that also had fan bases. Yeah. And I sort of relearned quickly the same lesson that I think I learned at Lucasfilm, which is that the bigger the property is and the more money is involved in it, the harder it is to, to do anything experimental or out of the normal kind sure. of path. But there was uh, that, were studios now approaching you because they had seen what you had done on Veronica Mars? Uh, through Warner connections, Brothers? people okay. had, had gotten in touch and said, hey, do you think you could do something like this with you know this X-Tentpole franchise? Sure. Um, but uh, what ended up happening was actually that one of the... You know, so I, I had been kind of the host on set for the people who had bought set visits to Veronica Mars or had, had contributed and got to be extras in the film. And one of those diehard Veronica Mars fans, as it turned out, was the head of community at Kickstarter. And she had like an amazing experience on set, she said, and was really impressed by how kind of the whole experience was sort of thought through and buttoned up for her and not an afterthought for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she went back and, you know, we, we were kind of occasionally in touch over email. Um, but then about a month after the Veronica Mars premiere, which was kind of the end of the main work that I was doing on it, um, she got in touch and said, hey, there's someone who we've been talking to that uh, could really use help from someone who understands how to do this stuff on a really big scale, and I think you might find the project interesting. So I said yes. Well, she said, uh, I said who, because I don't really want to do another movie if I can like, help it, because it right. would just be another year of exactly what I just did. And she explained that LeVar Burton had approached them about wanting to find a way to bring back Reading Rainbow, which you know, I, I understood the nostalgic value of and also kind of liked yeah. that it was simultaneously another opportunity to tap into fandom and a fan community, but also this one had obviously some social impact yeah, that I felt was totally was a worthwhile. Good, good cause. And I was like, well, if I can devote a year of my life to like helping fans feel connected to a canceled TV show, it would be dickish to not you know, devote some time to helping kids learn to love reading. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so Sure, that's, that's how I feel sometimes when I talk to people who try to raise funds for m- more noble things than, than our Super Troopers 2 movie in the sure. sense that... Uh, uh, you know, I have friends who work out in the world doing uh, good things in the world, and they're like, "I can't believe you put together four million bucks <laughs> for sure." And it's just it's a function of what your fan base is, but that's you know that's just the way it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have to go soon, so I'm gonna ra- I'm gonna rattle through some real quick things. Sure. Here, okay. First, uh, for, going back to what we were just talking about, the Super Troopers people, we've got a lot of uh, this is a more practical question. We've got a lot of requests from people like what. You know, when do these perks get fulfilled? Maybe you could just lay out for people when they're going to... What that timeline's like. Yeah, because people are like, where's my T-shirt? You know, or where's my uh, fuck sure. chicken fucker video? For sure. So um, there's we're actually on... If people go to brokenlizard.com, there, uh, there's an FAQ page there, which we're trying to keep updated with a schedule of when you get expect stuff, each yeah. of the rewards. But the main thing that happens now, and this is kind of familiar to anybody who's done a crowdfunding, who's given to a crowdfunding project before and not to people who haven't, is that before we can just start sending T-shirts out, <clears throat> in a lot of cases, we don't have the addresses we need to send them to for people. Sure. We don't know what shirt size somebody needs. We don't know which design out of multiple designs they want. We don't know. You know, There are a variety of things we need to figure out. So the next thing that happens is we prepare and send out this super elaborate, on our side, simple, You know, for those of you who are listening to this, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, we prepare a survey, which will go out in waves to everybody who gave money to the project, and we'll give everyone a chance to specify all the details we need to make sure they get exactly what they want. And, you know, to, if they want to, to add in some additional stuff, cause we've got some perks that got added late in the campaign that a lot of people never saw. Yeah. Um, 
and then some stuff will start going out. Uh, the chicken fucker videos actually should be out by the end of June. Yep. Uh, we, Kevin and I, were just recording we were just uh, a few hundred cool. of those. We were just fucking yep. chickens just before this uh, podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Jay spent a good chunk of yesterday riding mustaches uh, or offering <laughs> to let people right. ride his. Yeah. Um, you know, some things, the, the first wave of physical stuff, I think, will come late this summer. Like, by our goal is to have, like, the limited edition T-shirts. Yep. Uh, you know, the three that we offered during the campaign. Yeah. Hopefully by the end of August, if we can get all the sizing we needed from people to actually then produce and run off and create all of those shirts and get them right. shipped. And a lot of these things are contingent also <coughs> on the movie being shot. You know, exactly. And then a lot are. of things, a lot of the stuff, yeah. uh, you know, I would say a majority of the rewards are timed against when the movie comes out. So if it's, you know, next summer... People would get them, you know, the the package, the main package that a lot of people got, which consists of, say, you know, a T-shirt and a mustache and a badge and a uh, aviators and, you know, a Fandango code and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That stuff will come probably four to six weeks before the movie comes out. Right. So that everyone has it and it's kind of... Sure. Well, the, post, the poster isn't going to exist. Right. <clears throat> yeah, of course. Well, not only does the poster not exist, right. the movie hasn't been shot and the costumes haven't been assembled. Yeah. The cop which car has to happen because we can't uh, take photos of you guys in costume to start designing a poster until sure. we have the costume. So it's yeah. sure. It's a work so people just have thing. to wait till we finish the movie, yeah, which will happen yeah. soon. And, and the beefcake you know, calendar, yeah. we're going to shoot probably on the set. <laughs> yeah, the beefcake calendar, uh, that is one of the ones we're definitely aiming to. I think I was working on this this morning. The goal is to have that out to people maybe by November 20th so okay. that it's safely out in time for people to gift right. it for the holidays. Sure. You know, what good is a 2016 calendar if it arrives two or three months in sure. 2016? Sure, you it's don't not. want that to happen, it's right? Not. It's just not. Tinfoil monkey agenda, when is that available? <clears throat> we finally found a clean print of it. We just got a digital transfer back. Okay. So the only remaining step now is to uh, decide the appropriate way to premiere it. So I think one of the things um, you guys are, all five of you in Broken Lizard, need to decide is how we're going to do the grand unveiling, which, you know, we could just drop it on Vimeo tomorrow for people, but I think there was some talk of doing a a live event or a Google Hangout or something where you guys could do yeah. real-time Q&A sure. during or right after the Look movie. at our young selves, our young and experienced selves. I mean, there's always there's always Periscope if we have to, but I think something more accessible <laughs> would sure. be even better. Sure. So, okay, sure. so then the news on that is any day now. Any day now. Yeah. Okay, so uh, uh, so everyone stay tuned. Those pro- all those products are coming. They're coming. We're working hard on them. Um, uh, in a more theoretical, philosophical uh, kind of closing questions, uh, Still not a mathematician. A lot of uh, a lot of criticism about crowdfunding in general. Sure, and a lot of people who don't like it or criticize it. What do you say to the critics of crowdfunding? Uh, I mean, in a lot of cases, I agree with them. Yeah, um, I think that's a hard question to answer without getting into what specific criticism we're talking about because there are several different. There are different critiques. kinds of criticisms, right? But I will say, you know, I I, I agree with the critics who say it's shitty to think that people just see it as a source of free money and would be coming in because it's easier for them and has less strings attached to it. Right. Which is not really the case. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, more often than not, what people who criticize crowdfunding for that fail to realize is that the people who give money to these projects aren't stupid uh, and they're not ignorant. And when a project comes in thinking that it's an easy way to get money without giving anything back, mm-hmm. nobody gives to it and the project fails. So I think it's kind of a self-correcting system in that regard. Yeah. The the one that's probably you know that we're on the receiving end of most, and I haven't seen it that much with Super Troopers, honestly. I yeah, saw it, you know, I haven't. Seen, I saw it a lot more with say, you know, everyone from Spike Lee to Zach Braff to, yeah. uh, to even Veronica Mars, because Warner Brothers was involved in that project directly in a way yeah. that Fox isn't directly involved in in Super yeah. Troopers too. Right. Um, 
you know, there's there's this chronic critique that says, well, you guys are kind of screwing up crowdfunding because it's this space for people who have no other option. It's exactly. for right. you know, guys in their garage and it's for people who want to invent stuff that nobody will take a chance on and, yeah. you know, for a big movie that needs millions of dollars to come in and, and crowd out all of these movies that only need, you know, $10,000, $15,000, you guys are taking the money from independent artists who need it more. Right. And that is a compelling sounding argument. Yeah, it happens so. to be empirically totally wrong. Like all of the data says that it's actually exactly the opposite. And there are yeah. two things I think are important here. One is there's just sort of a logical mistake there, which is unless I'm way outside of the norm, I don't think anybody has a Kickstarter or a crowdfunding budget. <laughs> right. Like and if they use it here, spending. they're not going to use it there. Right. right. I don't think there's any notion of like, well, I was going to spend it on this movie by some guy I've never heard of who has never made anything that I you know want to see. But I didn't realize Super Troopers 2 was an option, so forget that guy. Right. It doesn't happen that way. If if anything, if people are spending money on a project like Super Troopers 2, especially a project like Super Troopers 2 that gives them the movie ticket that they were going to buy with the same money next year anyway, right. odds are if it's taking away money from anything, it's taking away from other stuff at the box office or other things that they would rent or a video game they would buy or something like that. Or their children's like... Uh, or their children's education. Sure. Or food. Or sure. clothing. Yeah. Sure. Like sure. essentials. But I don't, but there's no I don't think the competition budget. is between yeah. you know this or some other crowdfunding. And also there's a free market ar- argument. There's a free market argument which is like, I can spend my right, dollars where I want to. Spend their money. I can. I can. If I don't want to donate, I don't have to. If I want, that's, so that's, the fuck are you to say I can't so, donate? So to it's it. not that's a gun crit- to anybody's head. That's right. critique one. Is the is? Yeah. I think it's just. It sounds smart, but is actually just totally factually inaccurate to say yeah. that money put into a big scale crowdfunding project is money that would otherwise have gone into a small scale. That's just right. not how it works. Right. The second thing is, and you know, Kickstarter has published some data on this, but I think there's some easy common sense here too. On Veronica Mars, on Reading Rambo, and now on Super Troopers, I haven't gotten the final number from Indiegogo, but I can guarantee you that for at least 50%, probably 60 to 70% of the people who decided to contribute to Super Troopers 2, it was their first time ever supporting yeah. a crowdfunding project. In fact, we got tons of letters who said, damn you guys, I was never going to support a crowdfunding project and you <laughs> took my V-card. Right, right. Um, and that's the idea of why it's such an expanding universe. Right. That's even that more and people more people are coming come into, into the world. And here's the thing, right? Yeah. Like, so for Veronica Mars, 60 to 70% of the people who supported that project, it was their first ever crowdfunding project. Yeah. That means they weren't people who were sitting around Kickstarter deciding what to spend money on right. and spent it on a big project at the expense of a small one. What actually happened is it brought a whole bunch of people in, made them familiar with crowdfunding, and they went on to support. I mean, I, I don't want to miscite the data. So, you know, there's a, an article. Uh, called the blockbuster effect that you can find on Kickstarter's site that they published on their blog. But basically the idea was when you bring in tens of thousands of new people, that rises all boats and all of these small projects end up getting you know more patrons because more people discover them. Yep, more sure. people. And I know that on Veronica Mars, more. what happened was that so many people actually formed a community, not just with us, but like the fans of Veronica Mars who called themselves Marshmallows in large part, mm-hmm continued talking to each other on you know in a skype chat room that they set up on the message board on kickstarter long after there was anything to talk about for the project and they started sharing things they were seeing with each other and saying hey i just found yeah. this other project that's really awesome and i think if you guys like veronica mars you'll like this and several other projects got such a lift from the veronica mars fan base explicitly that they released videos that called out veronica mars fans and said thank you for adopting us too and helping us get there that's great and you know so the notion that it was like a choice wasn't there also right um yeah, I mean, certainly Community. When, you the, when you'd go to the Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign to, you know, connect to Super Troopers, I mean, mm-hmm. you're seeing Suggests a ton of a other, dozen other things. things, and that's, those are eyeballs. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then the last thing is, you know, I think it's really easy to be crassly cynical and say, you know, this is a movie that's going to come out in theaters. You guys are going to get rich. What are we going to get for it? And, you know, we just paid all the money so that what? So that you don't have to? But I think a couple things 
especially with you guys, no offense, are pretty obvious. Like you don't have five million, ten no. million dollars in liquid Sit cash down. that you could have chosen no. to invest to make this movie. Yeah. I think it's it's fairly apparent, you know, Fox as much as I wish. Fox and other studios, you know, if there was a studio route for this, you guys would have done it five, ten years ago. Sure. Yeah. We tried. So in a lot of ways <laughs> hard, I mean, hard. by definition, like this actually fits the exact case that crowdfunding is made for, which is people want to get something done. There's an audience that wants to see it get done. The existing system, whether that's you know manufacturing or in this case the studio and entertainment system, yeah, doesn't want to spend the money. Doesn't think it's a wise proposition. So there's still a recourse for fans who want to see it happen. I mean, no one was tricked into thinking like, give us this so we can make money off of you. Right. It was a very straight proposition, which I, was we I, can't make this without you. If you want us to make it, help us. Yeah. And we haven't actually bored people with the details, but I, I've, I felt and there are a lot of boring details. Yeah. There are a lot of boring details. In fact, I actually found it to be harder than what your average crowdfunding campaign would be simply because somebody actually owns this idea. Yeah. And same thing with Veronica Mars. If they could have made yeah. it without, they would have, but yeah. Warner Brothers owned it. Yeah. They, we, like, w- and it's still going to be a rock fight to get it made. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still a, a budget fight. You know what I mean? Yeah. All right, last question for you. Yeah. Where's it going? What uh, uh, if it's uh, if it's expanding a thousand percent in the last five years? Where does crowdfunding go? I know that I know you're not the crowdfunding guru. Oh, sure. Hey. I know you're not the guru. He's the whisperer, though. I know. But where, like, where is this going? I know there's I, a possibility for equity sure. participation. I know there's stuff like that. Like, where where does this go? I'll put it to you this way: uh, there was a time, maybe like ten years ago, yeah, when the word social media just started to come up. And if you said social media, people sort of knew what you were talking about. Like, you probably meant Facebook, you probably meant Twitter, or you you know meant something like that. Now, social media refers to so many things that it's basically the entire web, and the words don't really mean anything. But if you were to list how much money was moved last year because of social media deals, mm-hmm. it would sound like billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. The same thing I think is sort of happening with crowdfunding. Like, it's stretching to describe so many things right. that, in some ways, the figures you started this conversation with can be misleading. Are bullshit. Because for some people, those figures are nothing but a pre-order that looks like crowdfunding sure you know, you're buying a product early but even if but you look at the numbers of kickstarter themselves sure but even on kickstarter yeah. there are some campaigns that don't really need the money they're literally just doing pre-order i mean the pebble right. who was for a long time the top you know grossing product there yeah and then lost it to the coolest cooler they just did another one this summer that's again the top grossing product called pebble time which is their competitor to the apple watch okay they were never in any danger of not being able to make that product what right. they did is they went back to kickstarter and they said our first product started here and we feel some affinity for this community, and we want to do this the same way. So you can basically get a discounted pre-order price for this product, which we're going to release this summer anyway. Right. <laughs> and then they made you know fifteen million dollars or something like that. Now, is that fifteen million dollars in crowdfunding, or is it fifteen million dollars in pre-orders that were collected on a crowdfunding site? Yeah. Like it's you know in some ways the does that matter? Well, it matters only if you're asking if crowdfunding is like this huge disruptive force. Because if it's just pre-ordering, right. it's not really a disruptive force. It's just a new new clothing on an old phenomenon. Yeah. What I would say is, like, I don't know what the future of sites like Kickstarter and Indiegogo are. I think that when equity crowdfunding starts, it'll change the playing field a lot, obviously. But I think the reason it'll do that is because right now, the things that do well under crowdfunding don't have to be things that are good financial propositions. They only have to be things that are good emotional propositions. They have to be things that are underdogs or that people want to see succeed, even though the market probably wouldn't let them succeed. When you have equity crowdfunding, I think it's going to flip at least it'll be kind of a parallel stream. I don't think it'll displace rewards-based crowdfunding, which is what they call you know, what's happened yeah. so far. Right. But I think people will stop. You know, It won't be that everybody who gives to an equity-based project is doing it because they're in love with what that is and think it needs to exist in the world. It'll be armchair micro-investing. If yeah, thinking, because they oh, want well, to make money off it. I'm smart. I think right. can see how that'll be a good deal. That'll do good. I want a piece of that, yeah. which is what investing has always been. Right. So I think you know, 
Well, just to explain it, equity, you get a piece of the equity. Yeah, basically, the, the, the idea of pie. Is instead of getting a T-shirt or right. a free, you get a return on your investment. Made, you get shares in it. But no. right now, there are limitations in terms of you know uh, who's going to be an investor and how many investors you can have in a project. Which have they're to trying to remove those federal laws. Yeah, but anyway, exactly. So that's the idea of fact, yeah. do you, do you think, get money back or do you get stuff and appreciation back? Right. Don't yeah. you think that like because <clears throat> I was thinking about it, it's totally fair, one hundred percent fair that if you give a dollar, sure, you should be considered a dollar. Investor, sure. If you have ten dollars, and, and and I know that these laws are coming. Don't you think that what's going to happen though? That'll be the next wave. It'll be okay. This a company will sprout up, and it'll mm-hmm. say, every dollar you invest, you become an investor, and you're going to get some sort of return on it. And then what will happen is the people will say, they'll just start becoming you know more discerning. I mean, certainly those like um, the day traders mm-hmm. will. I mean, there will be a version of a day trader that will say, okay, I'm going to look to invest in I do in think there will like be this. micro-mutual funds. Like, I think there will be entire people whose job is to look at all of the crowdfunding projects, and you could just say, like, I want to give $200 a month to a portfolio of good equity crowdfunded projects, sure. and, like, I expect you to manage them. But that's yeah. that's basically what, you know, investing yeah. is now. Sure. What I, I mean, what I'll say is, like, I don't know... I think there will be a blend. I think some people will, you know, give money to movies, and in addition to getting the poster or the DVD, they will also potentially be able to get some money back that said economics especially of the film industry are a weird thing and any project under say you know that's under a 10 million dollar budget is likely to spread so thin that what you'd pay to get in and on board your share of it it's unlikely i mean As an this is one investor. thing hollywood yeah. excels yes. at it's entirely possible that you could keep a movie from ever looking like it made money on oh, paper so how are investors sure. ever supposed to make anything back Believe yeah. we're familiar with this but that's why in the film world that's why it's more important what, what we're talking about here and it goes back to to what you were talking about the thing you wrote about itunes it's like you're creating a situation where people can pre essentially yeah. well, buy what they want to I'll see i'll say like one more thing on all points of veronica mars and i wouldn't be surprised you know i i certainly would love to see super troopers go a different way but i'll point to veronica mars as a case study because i was really interested in what the critical response to it was from critics when it came out and it the movie itself the, the movie itself the movie, right, when it came right. out both in terms of its box office performance which you know was never like super publicly disclosed and its digital sales performance which warner brothers knows but hasn't had to publicly disclose um you know and i don't think i will say that i my understanding is that they weren't disappointed with it i think they've said that on record right but when you look at reviews of the movie they kind of a lot of them cluster around the same criticism which is oh this was too much fan service how are they ever going to get more people interested if it's catering so hard to what sure. fans know and care about that sort of thing. Bullshit, yeah. And, you know, so it's a failure because it really didn't manage to open this movie up to a wider audience. Yeah. And what I found so interesting about that is that, to me, that's actually the definition, potentially, of a successful crowdfunding-enabled yeah. project. Because Absolutely. Because if it could have succeeded under the classic market model, it would have and should have succeeded under the classic market model. Mm-hmm. The entire beauty of crowdfunding is that it is a alternate path for things that could never have been made that way. Right. And projects like this, if they want to super target in and not worry about appealing to you know the lowest common denominator and having something for everybody so that lots of people find it accessible, mm-hmm. and they want to make something, that would have traditionally never been possible. Yeah. That's and what that critique is logical. Exactly. And that's just something that a, a critic is la- yeah. latching on in order to no, put course, something because to it's, it's article. the only way yeah. we've ever critiqued movies from a yeah. box office perspective right. is, well, they really need to be thinking about how it's going to grow its following, but yeah. maybe this was the, you know, the postscript on the story of that fandom. And the whole point was that they got the thing they wanted, and that story's over now. Yeah, no, it's true. Because Super sure Troopers, that, you know, I, think to I look know. at that as a failure is not necessarily not at all. I don't think it's a to failure. the project I mean, or to the fans. Because in Super Troopers two, the content of that movie will have really nothing to do with the crowdfunding of it. Mm-hmm. The fact that we are able to make the movie does exactly. And so when you critique the movie in itself, it doesn't so much matter as the content that put in, but the ability to make it is more important. 
Elvis. Yeah, and and you know our listen, our movies get panned. Uh, yeah, we never right. had a good review. We never in our had a good review to start with. So who cares? We never had a good review. I, I think. I, well, I told you guys like the you know you and others asked me why this was a project I was interested in getting involved in, especially after like reading Rainbow, which is socially valuable. Yeah. To jump on you know a movie uh, about cops fucking around in Vermont like, right. seems less like. Socially valuable. Social, yes, socially valuable. <laughs> right. Sure, but but I think I told you the, the single thing that convinced me that this was going to be awesome to work on and that it would, like Star Wars was for me, be something that made a lot of people happy yeah. was the fact that on Rotten Tomatoes, the score for the first movie from critics is something like 32%, yeah. and the score from fans is something like 92%. Right. And that, to me, was like the fastest shorthand you could ask for of saying, this is something that the fans get that the establishment doesn't and fans will understand why it needs to be fought for if it's ever going to happen. Yeah. Well, it certainly felt that way. And why we needed their help to get it made. It seemed like, you know, it honestly seems like, and we wouldn't have done it, but it honestly seems like we could have said like, you know, we need $10 million, whatever number the studio had said you need to raise. And that the fans knowing that that's the case would have contributed. And that was the, you do feel that love right off the bat, which is like, you see it in the comments. It's like, I want to get this movie made. You know, like some people have sentimental uh, postings. Some people are like, you know, I, I, I do it. I, you know, yeah. I need a bug's turd to, you know, sure. get the movie made. But a lot of the contributors, I guarantee, from now until when the movie comes out, will not refer to it as the movie, but as our movie. Yeah, and that's that's great. A pretty telling difference. Yeah, love it. Yeah. Um, okay, I have an ask with. Thank you very much. I hope we, I hope we didn't uh, waste your time here. Kevin Heffernan, Steve Lemmy, I've never regretted any two hours of my life. Oh, more. good. What about Cannabis Cup? Did you regret any of that time? <laughs> when LeVar Burton cried, did he cry into those like narrow sunglasses that he wore on uh, Star Trek? Nope. He cried right into the camera. <laughs> you fucking dick, Lemmy. You cynical dick. And those weren't glasses. Those were a visor that gave him the gift of sight because he was blind. But yeah, nice try. You fucking asshole, Lemmy. Well, so he, way, so to pick a, way to pick on the disabled. Lemmy. No, so he so could, he could experience what it really means to cry and, and you know have tears clouding your, your vision. But you know he's an actor, right? <laughs> Who wasn't actually blind. It was a character. I he believed played. him. He's a great a character actor. in a movie. Right. He's actually a better actor than you're giving him credit for because I believed it. No, he's Kunta Kinte. He is Kunta Kinte. He's one of the Kunta. And he's yeah. and he's an executive producer of the New Roots. Why are we still talking? Do you know who know. the other Kunta Kinte okay. was? You got John chew. Amos. He was older Kunta Kinte. Yeah, yeah. Chew, chew. Yeah, I'm quitting this podcast. You know, this is half my podcast, Kevin. Thank you, Ivan. We appreciate it. We'll talk to everybody next week. Now leaving Nerdist.com.